You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. Hello, my name is Megan Andrews and I'm a criminal defense lawyer practicing in downtown Toronto. Welcome to the CLA's Canada's Court podcast. This case deals with the application of the Charter to Canadian Armed Forces members stationed abroad. The appellant, Corporal McGregor, was a Canadian Armed Forces member stationed in Washington, D.C. and living in nearby Alexandria, Virginia. While he was stationed there, a fellow Canadian Armed Forces member discovered an audio recording device hidden in her residence and made a report to the Canadian Forces National Investigation Services, CFNIS. Constable McGregor became the target of the investigation and a warrant was sought sought for his residence to be searched. The CFNIS sought the assistance of local authorities to obtain a warrant. Alexandria police officers obtained a warrant from the Virginia court authorizing the search of his home, seizure of his devices, and analysis of those seized devices. Virginia law permits the search of devices found within a residence under the authority of the warrant to search the residence. The search of the devices began with a triage process inside the home. Officers found evidence of the suspected offenses and other offenses, including sexual assault. All seized devices were returned to the Virginia State Court before being sent to Canada, where CFNIS obtained Canadian warrants to conduct further analyses. At his trial before the Canada court-martial, Constable McGregor argued that the search of his devices violated his Section 8 protection against unreasonable search and seizure. Relying on the case of Vu, he contended that officers should have obtained a separate warrant before searching his devices. The military judge ruled that the Charter did not apply to the search of his residence because CFNIS lacked the power to obtain its own warrant to search the premises. Even if the Charter did apply, the court ruled that it would not have found a Section 8 violation and would not have excluded the evidence under Section 24-2. Constable McGregor appealed this decision to the Court Martial Appeal Court of Canada, or CMAC. The CMAC dismissed the appeal, finding that the military judge was correct in concluding that the Charter did not have extraterritorial application in this case. However, the CMAC held that even where the Charter does not apply, the military court should consider whether the admission of the evidence would affect the applicant's right to a fair trial. The appeal court found that admitting the evidence would not undermine the applicant's right to a fair trial in this case. In admitting the evidence, the CMAC noted that even in Canada, a single warrant may authorize both the seizure and the search of the electronic devices. Furthermore, the triage search was not conducted in an unreasonable manner. The triage search was conducted with the aim of finding evidence of the specific offenses alleged. Once officers found evidence of other offenses, those devices were set aside until a Canadian warrant could be secured. The appeal was denied and his convictions were upheld. The SEC granted leave to appeal the decision of the CMAC. Good morning, everybody. Please be seated. 
In the case of um, Corporal C.R. McGregor against Her Majesty the Queen, for the appellant, Corporal C.R. McGregor, Diana Mansour, and Mark Letourneau. For the intervener, British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Mr. Gib Vanert and Dahlia Schwebar. For the intervener, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Lee West and Solomon Friedman. For the intervener, Canadian Constitution Foundation, Jesse Artery and Akshay Aurora. For the intervener, David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights, Mr. Gerald Chan, Alexandra Hein. For the respondent, Her Majesty the Queen, Patrice Germain. And Natasha A. Thiessen. Um, and Chevy Walsh. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Gavin McDonald and Stephanie A. Lewis. Please be advised that there is a publication ban and sealing order in this file from the Standing Marshal Court pursuant to Section 179 of the National Defense Act and Section 486.4 of the Criminal Code. But before we start, avant de commencer les plaidoiries ce matin, je tiens à souligner qu'il s'agit aujourd'hui de la dernière participation du juge Moldaver aux audiences de la Cour suprême du Canada. As Chief Justice, I wish to take this opportunity on behalf of my colleagues and all Canadians to thank Justice Moldaver for his many years of devoted service to this court and the administration of justice. He has served Canada and Canadians with distinction and dedication, leaving an indelible mark on Canada's legal system and its criminal law system in particular. His colleagues and I have benefited from his wisdom, warmth, and wit. And Canadians have benefited from his unwavering commitment to fair and just results. This is Justice Moldaver's 630th hearing on the Supreme Court. Over the last 11 years, he has written more than 100 judgments, decisions that are, regardless of the subject matter, easy to read and accessible to just about anybody. Indeed, he has always written his judgments with a focus on clarity in an effort to make them more understandable to Canadians. As a fellow judge, what I have most admired about Justice Moldaver is his enduring commitment to preserving Canadians' confidence in their justice system. His clear and concise style of communicating extends to how he questions lawyers in the courtroom. He poses questions in an approachable style that clarifies complicated issues for the parties and members of the public watching from home or in the courtroom. Justice Moldaver came to this court with a reputation as a hard-working judge on Ontario's Court of Appeal and as a trial judge before that. In total, 
He has served for 32 years as a trial, appeal, and Supreme Court judge. Throughout, he has applied the law fairly, pragmatically, and, as I have mentioned, clearly. And whether as a lawyer or a judge, he has always exemplified collegiality, compassion, and courage. He has been gracious and respectful to everyone, and I know the court staff will also miss him. Justice Moldaver's time at the Supreme Court has been a continuation of a long and remarkable career. He started out in 1973 under G. Arthur Martin and later worked alongside Eddie Greenspan and Alan Gold, to name but a few. He became a partner of the firm a mere two years later. That must be a record time. But he was a formidable criminal defense lawyer. After practicing for only 17 years, he was appointed as a trial judge in 1990, an appeal court judge in 1995, and a member of this court in 2011. Along the way, he became one of this country's most respected judges. Despite all the hours he has spent in the courtroom or at his desk writing judgments, he has always made time for the broader legal community. Over the years, he judged moot court competitions and instructed many continuing legal education programs. He also delivered speeches on wrongful convictions, jury instructions, and as he so aptly put it, the art of judging. But my favorite was entitled, The Perry Mason Myth, Law is a Noble Profession. He said when he graduated from law school, he suffered from that Perry Mason myth, the fictional American criminal defense lawyer who had a talent for causing witnesses to faint and jurors to cry. Just small, they were said, and I quote, Perry enjoyed the public fame and notoriety of a rock star and was literally rolling in dough, and I could hardly wait to be like Perry, unquote. Instead, Justice Moldaver quickly learned that the profession is not about fame or money, but about helping people. And that, in the end, made him feel good. But undoubtedly, his greatest joy was, has been his family. And many of them are with us today. I want to extend my and my colleagues' gratitude to Justice Moldaver's wife, Ricky, his daughters, Shannon and Jessica, his grandchildren, and extended family. They have generously shared Justice Moldaver with us for all these years. Being a judge is a great privilege, but it is also a very, very demanding job where judges sometimes miss out on family plans and special events. Our thanks again to each of you. In closing, I would like to return to something Justice Moldaver said at his swearing-in ceremony in 2011. In paraphrasing the late Justice Brennan, he told his new colleagues that he was not expecting to distinguish himself on the court, but to benefit by association. Yet, in the years since, he has distinguished himself and it is we 
who have benefited by association. Thank you so much, Mike. Just small favor, mon cher Mike, the floor is now yours. Well, I haven't broken down yet, <laughs> but could happen. Uh, thank you, Chief Justice, for your kind and overly generous remarks. Uh, you have now held the high office of Chief Justice for about four and a half years. And I have to say, in all sincerity, Chief, I've never heard you speak so well. <laughs> when you came to the court in 2012, I had been here exactly one year. And I kind of thought of you as the baby brother I never had. And come to think of it, the resemblance is really quite uncanny. <laughs> but it's been a joy and privilege for me to grow up with you, Chief. I'm now about 11. You're almost 10. And as I see it, the only thing that differentiates us at this point is that I'm still a puny judge and you're Chief Justice of Canada. I can't tell you, Chief, how happy I am that one of us made it. And made it you have. Over the years that you have been Chief Justice, you have led the court with vision, courage, and great distinction. Among the many goals that you have set for yourself, the one that stands out for me is the effort you have made and continue to make in bringing the court to the people. You have opened up the doors and windows of this magnificent edifice and this venerable institution, and you've let the sun shine in. And you've done so not so that the members of the public could see us in the splendor of our red robes or to pay homage to us in recognition of the high office that we hold, not at all. You did it because you recognized that fundamentally we are here to serve the people of this great country. We are here to preserve and protect a justice system that is premised on the supremacy of the rule of law, a justice system that prides itself on an independent judiciary and open courtrooms, a justice system that is accessible to all who are in need of and seek its protection, and vitally, a justice system that is founded on the belief that we are all equal before and under the law, and that every human being is entitled to be treated fairly with respect and dignity. For that and so much more, Chief Justice, you are owed a great debt of gratitude. And I know my colleagues join with me in wishing you good health and happiness and many, many more productive and rewarding years on the court. To my colleagues, I wish the same for each and every one of you. It has been an honor and privilege to work with you and an even greater honor and privilege to call you my friends, especially when you concurred with me 
and gave me the fifth vote I needed for a majority. Not quite so much when you were led astray and went the other way. The truth is, ladies and gentlemen, that I have never before worked with such a dedicated group of people, people who care so much, people who spend their every waking moment, often between the hours of 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., pacing the floor on those sleepless nights that we all know only too well, trying our best to do what is right and just, not only for the litigants appearing before us, but more generally for the people of Canada as a whole. This can and does at times lead to animated and spirited discussions, which can at times leave some of us feeling a bit raw. But when the dust settles and the new day dawns, we all come away knowing that our strong feelings are born not out of contempt or disdain, Rather, they are born out of the care we bring to our work, religiously, day in and day out. And that is as it should be. So I say thank you, dear colleagues, for everything. You're going to be very much missed. I also want to say a special word of thanks to the many devoted men and women who look after the day-to-day workings of the court and who ensure that the judges receive the assistance they need to carry out the demands of their office. In many ways, you are the backbone of the court, and you carry out your duties with a degree of excellence and professionalism, the likes of which I have never before seen. Time does not permit me to name names, but I do wish to recognize the members of my chambers, and to offer my profuse thanks to them. My judicial assistants over this past year's past year, Jean-Vierre Denis, Hélène Serrault, and Sylvie Henry. My judicial attendant, the, legend, the legendary Joe Botello, and my devoted law clerks in alphabetical order, Rachel Chan, Curtis Doyle, Julia Kirby, and Jocelyn Rempel. Thank you, one and all. I couldn't have done this without you. And finally, I want to say a heartfelt thanks to my family members who have come to the court today to be with me on my final sitting day. My two wonderful daughters, Shannon and Jessica, are here. Both are lawyers, and they are more than happy to tell me when I get something right. And when they think I got it wrong, they have learned not to say a word. (laughs) As you might imagine, over the past 11 years, there have been a rather large number of very short calls. Shannon is here with her husband, Daniel, and their two brilliant and handsome boys, Ethan and Jackson. And it's okay, actually, Daniel, you're brilliant and handsome, too. At my swearing-in ceremony in 2011, Ethan and Jax could hardly see over the table. Now both of them have to reach down 
to pat the top of their Zadie Mike's head. Two quick comments about my daughters, Shannon and Jess. Shannon, on May 15, 1990, I was sworn as, as a judge of the High Court of Justice for Ontario. You were there. You turned 18 that day. That was 32 years ago. I'll leave it to others to figure out how old you turned this past Sunday, May 15th. But I wanted to give you a very belated happy return, Shan. And to Jess, I found the note you gave me when Justice Karakatsanis and I were sworn in publicly as judges of this court on November 14th, 2011. It reads, Good luck, Dad. Never stop working hard. You have me to support. <laughs> Lots of love, Jess. I'll certainly keep that in mind, Jess, as I begin the next chapter of my life. There goes my retirement. And Ricky's wonderful daughter, Hilaya, is here with her handsome and brilliant husband, Rudy, <laughs> and their two beautiful children, Isabel and Nathan. I love it when the kids come over to our home for sleepovers on the weekend. We have a lot of fun, and they have a way of making me realize that there is a life beyond the court, one full of fun and games and laughter and Dairy Queen blizzards and craft dinners served with French fries and pizza. No disrespect, Chief Justice, but I can hardly wait. <laughs> Finally, to my dear wife, Ricky, who has put up with me through thick and thin. Ricky, you have always been there to support me, to advise me, to calm me down, and to tell me to get back to sleep at 3.30 in the morning whenever I woke up tossing and turning, worrying about this case or that. If you had a dollar for every time that happened over the past 11 years, I wouldn't have to start the next phase of my life looking for a job. Thank you for being the sun in my face and the wind at my back all these many years. Most assuredly, I couldn't have done any of this without you. Well, Chief, I don't see it, but I kind of think the red light is on. So I will end by saying that it is with humility and a deep sense of gratitude that I commence my final sitting day as a judge of the Supreme Court of Canada. I never expected to be here, but I've come to learn over the years that life takes you where it will. I have done my best to serve the people of this great country to the best of my ability. I hope I have contributed in some small measure to preserve and protect our justice system, a system that, in many respects, is the envy of the civilized world. I leave it to my colleagues and future members of the court to carry on the tradition of excellence that marks this court, remembering always that the institution is and always will be, will be greater than the sum of its individual parts. Thank you, Chief Justice, for allowing me to express my thanks to all who have made possible this very special day in my life. Thank you.
I just be so bold as to say, on behalf of the Crown, my Crown colleagues, my defence colleagues, it is an honour to appear before you at your last hearing, and thank you for your service to our country. Thank you very much. Uh, I just want to make sure that uh, the message is there also, that my, our colleague, Justice Martin, participates at the hearing uh, virtually. She's there on the screen. Uh, Ms. Mensour. And Chief Justice, if I may, before I begin, just to echo my, my colleague's comments, Justice Moldaver, congratulations, well-deserved retirement, and I just want to say on behalf of all of us, thank you for your contributions to the legal community and to all of us. Thank you. Good morning, Justices. I'm speaking on behalf of Corporal McGregor, the appellant in this matter. This case is about the charter rights of Corporal McGregor, as well as all military members, whether inside or outside of Canada. And more particularly, it is about the application of the Canadian Charter to a Canadian investigation of a Canadian military member and Canadian citizen. Our members serving Canada, whether inside or outside of Canada, ought to have their charter rights guaranteed when investigated by Canadian military police for Canadian criminal offences. The portability of the military justice system allows Canadian criminal law to apply to our military members when they are serving anywhere in the world, and with it, so should the Charter apply. The matter before the Court is a request to allow the appeal and have conviction set aside, acquittal substituted, or a new trial ordered. In support of our position, we will, we will be making three main submissions to this Court today. If I may direct you to the outline of oral argument contained in the condensed book. This will provide a map for our submissions today. We will be demonstrating, first, that the Charter applies to the actions of the military police when they search the appellant's residence because the National Defence Act and permissible international rules establish Canada's enforcement jurisdiction. Second, we will discuss that the Charter applies to the actions of the Canadian military police because the United States of America cooperated with and consented to Canada's enforcement jurisdiction and time permitting, Justices, third, that the Canadian military police violated the appellant's Section 8 charter rights by searching through his electronic devices on scene without a specific warrant, contrary to the Queen and VU. And, Justices, it's safe to say that our appeal rises and falls on the point that the charter applies to the actions of the military police. And prior to delving into the HAPE exceptions, we need to provide um, some very brief but crucial context to this case. The Code of Service Discipline, which is par part and parcel to the National Defense Act, is the basis of the military justice system. The military justice system has criminal jurisdiction over the appellant by virtue of the National Defense Act, which permits members to be investigated, arrested, charged, tried, and incarcerated anywhere in the world. This jurisdiction is necessary to maintain discipline, efficiency, and morale within the Canadian Armed Forces. For example, Section 130, sub 1, sub B of the National Defense Act gives the military police the reach to charge a member for an offense committed outside of Canada and to put that member on trial by way of courts martial anywhere in the world. And recent examples of that uh, have been in Afghanistan and in Germany. So the National Defense Act establishes jurisdiction over these individuals and criminal, criminal and disciplinary jurisdiction over these individuals and follows them everywhere in the world. 
So just to emphasize the point, so members are liable for every offense under the Canadian Criminal Code. So we're not just discussing military service offenses. We're talking about the Canadian Criminal Code anywhere in the world, even the moon, to to be dramatic. So they are the only group of Canadians who are subject to this jurisdictional reach by Canada. And we have to remind ourselves that it is a duty to serve. It is a legal obligation. So by virtue of their employment, they are subjected to this extraterritorial reach by Canada as is. And that's what makes this case very unique and unlike any facts that this court had faced in the Queen and Hape. So when we talk about this case, we really are talking about the application of the Canadian Charter to a Canadian investigation of a Canadian military member alleged to have committed a Canadian offence, criminal code offence. Our members serving in Canada ought to have their charter rights guaranteed when investigated by military police for Canadian criminal offences, given that they're always liable to Canadian criminal jurisdiction. I notice that you haven't referred us yet to the actual text of Section 32 of the Charter. Um, Will you be getting to that at some point? Yes, and I can get to that in in brief, uh, Justice Brown. So the idea of Section 32 is that it merely establishes that... get to this here. So Section 32 provides us with the basis in which the Charter applies. And I think it's well established um, in by this court in the Queen and Hape, and I don't think that this is a point of contention with the respondent, that Section 32 allows for the possibility of the Charter to apply outside of Canada. And because of that, the Queen and Hape, in the Queen and Hape, this court provided parameters to help guide us in terms of determining whether the Charter applies outside of Canada in a given circumstance. And that's what led to the two exceptions that were provided, and that is the permissible rule exception, which is the idea that there are permissible international laws that permit Canada's enforcement jurisdiction, as well as consent. So is there consent by that host nation that permits Canada to enforce its jurisdiction but there's in kind of But there's kind of a preliminary point, and that's whether this falls, uh, whether what is being challenged here um, was... Uh, the action of of the government of Canada taken within the authority of Parliament. That's the language of Section 32. I understand the investigation may have been conducted under the authority of Parliament, but that's you're not challenging the investigation. You're challenging the issuance of a warrant, the issue, the search and seizure that followed from it. Um, were are those matters which you're challenging matters within the authority of Parliament? It's the appellant's respectful submission that they are, because the National Defence Act is Canadian prescriptive um, law. It, it allows for prescriptive jurisdiction outside of Canada. That is within the authority of Parliament. But jurisdiction, well jurisdiction to do what? I mean, does it to, to, does, to, to, to issue a warrant to conduct the search and seizure on the authority of, I mean, under whose authority was this search and seizure conducted? Well, it's our respectful submission that it was conducted under the, under the authority of Canada. So you didn't need a warrant? They didn't need a warrant from, from the Virginia courts then? They did need a warrant. Or, 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 yeah. Of course. Okay. So, and, and the search was conducted under the authority of what? Under the Canadian authority. And that's essentially what Not, So they didn't need the warrant? They did need the warrant. Okay. So the search was conducted under the authority of the warrant? 
Respectfully, uh, Justice Brown, the appellant's position is that the warrant and what goes above the warrant was the authorization of Canada. And in order to understand the position... The, the Canada authorized the warrant? Correct. Really? Correct. Can I and see that warrant? I want to see where it says under the authority of Canada. I'll explain. So Take Justice me right Brown, to it. No, of course. Take so me it, right to it. Show not, me this. Not Show me this. Show me this warrant and tell me where it's, and you tell me where it says on that warrant it's issued under the authority of Canada. So, Justice Brown, it's not the warrant in and of itself. It's the letter from the embassy that provides the waiver of immunity. Because our position is that without that waiver of immunity, without the authorization of Canada, by virtue of the Vienna Convention, which is the convention in which both the United States and Canada have consented to be party to, without that authorization from Canadian authorities, the warrant could never be issued. Right. But but could the search have been conducted without the warrant? No, okay. Justice Brown. And that's where the NATO SOFA brings us into play. So the idea is, and the appellant's position is, that permissible international rule exception applies because the NATO SOFA and the Vienna Convention provides the Canadian military police with the authorization to enforce their jurisdiction. So the warrant in and of itself is subject to the authorization of Canada first. And it's the- part and parcel would allow the Canadian military police to act on a base. But this is a private residence. And so how does the status of forces agreement authorize the government of Canada or the officials of the government of Canada to carry out this search? Thank you, Justice Rowe. So that is what brings us essentially, and that's the basis of our first submission. It's the idea that the National Defense Act, in conjunction with the NATO SOFA and Vienna Convention, is what establishes that jurisdiction over the investigation and the search, because the NATO SOFA provides the mechanism for the military police to require that the U.S. authorities assist. So just to provide some background, the Vienna Convention, so we know the National Defense Act at at this point subjects the individual to Canadian criminal jurisdiction. Now, the Vienna Convention is part and parcel to this position because it forms the basis of his diplomatic immunity. So it identifies the privileges and protections that the benef- that diplomats, and in this case the appellant, benefit from while abroad. And Article 31 sub 1 specifies that the appellant his property and his residence are protected from the jurisdiction of the United States, which includes protections against search and seizures. And Article 31 sub 4 clearly states that the diplomatic immunity um, that protects the individual from U.S. jurisdiction, it doesn't exempt him from Canadian jurisdiction. So accordingly, that maintains the Canadian jurisdiction over this individual. And that is an authority that can only be waived by Canadian Authority, And that's where the NATO SOFA comes into play at this point. So, the so status- are you challenging the waiver of uh, uh, the partial waiver of the diplomatic immunity or are you challenging the, uh, the conduct of the search? Because the, the waiver of immunity facilitated the search, but it didn't authorize the search. And, and that's really picking up on the point that Justice Brown made. Thank you, Justice Rowe. So the appellant's respectful position is that we're challenging the conduct of the search. So when we talk about um, the enforcement, 
jurisdiction, we're talking about investigative jurisdiction. So what the NATO SOFA does, it maintains Canadian jurisdiction over any conduct that the appellant is alleged to have committed, and it maintains that jurisdiction and provides the Canadian military police with a mechanism to obtain evidence. And that's well, you're, you're not challenging the conduct of the search. You're challenging the search and the seizure. I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, this conduct is a fuzzy word that kind of allows you to get the Canadian officials into this, but it's the search that is the thing, surely, and the seizure. That's, that's the problem. And, and so it's not, a, I mean, the question of whether Canadian forces had the jurisdiction to investigate, to me, doesn't answer. It just actually begs the question, jurisdiction to do what? Did they have jurisdiction to authorize the search and the seizure? They didn't. They had jurisdiction to obtain it. And, but, but, your, but, but the Charter is quite clear on this. It has, you have to be acting within the authority of Parliament. Whatever you're challenging has mm-hmm. to have occurred within the authority of Parliament, and that was a search that was issued under the authority of the laws of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Thank you, Justice Brown. So respectfully, our position is we're not attempting to apply the charter to the actions of the U.S. authorities. We're not attempting to apply the charter to the state of Virginia warrant. What we're trying to apply the charter and what we're asking this court to apply the charter to is the conduct of the Canadian military police when they executed the search. So, Ms. Mansour, I'm sorry to interrupt. So to take you there, so you say you you don't want to apply the charter to the uh, state of Virginia. But what I try to find in your factum, what should the Canadian investigators, uh, what should they have done in order to uh, respect according to your perspective, from your perspective, their obligations? You recognize that they could, Canada could not issue the, the search warrant. You agree with that? That is correct. So what was the proper method from your perspective for the investigators to get evidence uh, from your clients' residence in the States. Thank you, Justice Cote. So, essentially, the idea is it's not with respect to the authorizi- authorization that's being challenged. It's a respect to the manner in which the search was conducted. So, yes, the warrant provided the military police with a mechanism to get in to the residence and to conduct the search. But when we look at the waiver that was provided by the Canadian Embassy, that waiver was with respect to the residence, so his person. And our position, just in brief, which with respect to the Section 8, is the idea that the the authorization for the search of the specific devices on scene was not provided by the Canadian Embassy because they maintained the inviolability of the individual. And based on the Queen and Vu, that is, is what we're position, uh, basing our position in, there has to be clear, express authorization to search devices while on scene. And the Canadian military police, their actions reflect their knowledge of that because when they seized the items, they did do a search on scene, and that is essentially what we're challenging. And then they took that, those devices back to Canada and obtained an additional warrant based on what they located um, while they did that search on scene and obtain that separate authorization to search the devices. So that's essentially what we're challenging. So we're not attempting to subject the U.S. authorities or the state of Virginia to charter standards. We're merely attempting to apply the charter to the actions of the Canadian military police. And it's our position that by virtue of the NATO SOFA, the NATO SOFA 
establishes criminal jurisdiction over the individual with the consent of the United States. So it says, us, Canada, we have criminal jurisdiction over this individual. And the, it, it's evident that it was understood that because when you're dealing with international law, jurisdiction is, is complicated. It's not unilateral. There are states that can have concurrent claims to jurisdiction. The, the purpose of the NATO SOFA is to deconflict that jurisdiction when it comes to Canadian military members. But inevitably, when it comes to a search, cooperation with a local authority is going to be inevitable. And if we try to uh, apply this idea of a unilateral authority or a unilateral requirement to Canadian state actors, then respectfully it renders Section 8 outside of Canada, pragmatically meaningless, because then we can't find a situation absent Parliament filling in this gap in the legislation. We can't find a mechanism to do that. So what the needle so is, that, does, is that actually accurate? Because uh, when evidence is presented in a Canadian court, can it not be challenged under 11D or in the alternative under Section 7 in the, if, if it was obtained in a manner which was, shall we say, entirely offensive to Canadian views of uh, a fair trial. For example, uh, they just smash down the door without a warrant and, and just grab everything in sight. And I mean, just, you know, thuggery. I mean, the re- is not the remedy for an accused person to say that that evidence should be excluded uh, at the trial under uh, 11D and Section 7. So your client is not without a remedy, it seems to me. Thank you, Justice Rowe. Um, yes, there is a remedy, but the standard is different than the standard that's applied to Section 24.2. And respectfully, that's putting the cart before the horse because we're of the position that the Charter ought to apply and that this court already provided a mechanism to allow it to pl- to apply, and that was established in the Queen and Hape. Now, this idea of, of the warrant, the U.S. warrant, being determinative of whether the actions of the military members or the military police ought to be subjected to the charter from our respectful position um, is a red herring because it doesn't account for the authorization and the Canadian umbrella or legal umbrella which superseded that warrant. Over here. Uh, Could I ask in practical terms what should have been done then? Uh, Is it your position that the CFNIS uh, officials, knowing that they required specific authorization or a VU warrant, should have gone to their U.S. counterparts and said, thank you very much for the warrant, but we need something much more particular uh, in order to use this evidence in Canada, and therefore the U.S. uh, investigators should have gone to the Virginia judge and asked for a more specific warrant. Is that really what it comes down to, that that was the problem in this case? Respectfully, um, thank you, Justice Jamal. So there's two, uh, essentially, options. And respectfully, our position is that the Charter ought to apply just and whether there was a breach or not is, is a secondary question. But with respect to how the CFNIS or the military police ought to have handled the matter is that they could have requested that particular authorization from the Canadian Embassy, but they did not. And that's clear in the documentation that they provided to the Embassy. They were strictly seeking a warrant for the residents. Alternatively, they could have seized the devices, which they ultimately did, take them back to Canada and obtain that specific authorization. Again, which they ultimately did, but not without certain those devices while on scene. 
So those are alternatives that could have been taken. But again, that proceeds after the fact. We're of the position that the Charter ought to apply because the, despite the U.S. warrant, that the authority that oversaw the U.S. warrant was Canadian because... So, Ms. Manso, we should not uh, uh, give any weight to the fact that in the search warrant there is uh, the, the authorization to seize the property, the objects, etc., etc., and to analyze and the analysis of the seized items. So we should not... Uh, it means nothing in your position? Thank you, Justice Cote. Uh, respectfully, that, you know, had we been dealing with U.S. authorities who conducted the search, we'd be dealing with a different question. But because the search was exclusively conducted by the Canadian military police, that that warrant and their authorization was limited by the authorization provided by the Canadian embassy. So yes, for example, the warrant could have provided authorization to search for A, B, and C. But if the Canadian embassy, the embassy that has the authorization and has the jurisdiction over this individual and his residence, if they only provided authorization for A, then it, it does not necessarily matter that the U.S. warrant provided authorization for B and C because the waiver of immunity was specific to A, which is the search of the residence. So again, had this been a situation in which U.S. authorities were conducting the search, we'd be having a different conversation. But there was a clear demarcation of duties because all parties involved were of the understanding that this was a Canadian investigation and that Canadians had jurisdiction and that the Canadian authorities were but, merely... But doesn't that fly in the face of exactly what the Americans said? Didn't the American authorities, and I would say the Virginia authorities, not the national government authorities said, look, um, okay, you've waived immunity or inviolability about the residence. We're not going in there unless we have a basis under our law. We need to talk to this complainant. We have to see whether they're under an American law. There's, there's some basis for us to go and seek this warrant. Now, it may be an offense under your law, but it has to be an offense under our law as well. There has to be a basis under uh, the law of the Commonwealth of Virginia to, 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 to make this entry and to make this search. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of work side by side with you. But we, the Virginia authorities, are acting under our own uh, jurisdiction and, and not, uh, you know, sort of as flunkies for the Canadians and certainly not for the Canadian embassy. Thank you, Justice Rowe. Respectfully, um, it's the appellant's position that the U.S. authorities were aware of their role. So pursuant to the NATO SOFA, which is an agreement that they are also party to, um, they're required to assist Canada in the exercise of its investigative or enforcement jurisdiction over the individual in a criminal offense. So Article 7, Section 6A provides Canada with a mechanism in the execution of their own investigation to obtain evidence. And the U.S. authorities respectfully were operating under the understanding that it was their obligation to do so and to assist Canada in the exercise of that duty. And the way that the search unfolded um, from our respectful position clearly identifies that the parties were aware of what their role was. You had Sergeant Partridge. He's a Canadian military police. He's the lead investigator. He's the one that determines how the case progresses, what steps are to be taken. 
and the, mil- the U.S. authorities weren't even advised of the investigation until their assistance was needed pursuant to the NATO SOFA. So the NATO SOFA still maintains that Canadian jurisdiction over the investigation. So while the U.S. authorities were assisting, at the end of the day, they understood that that investigation or that jurisdiction belonged to Canada. And that's evident in the way that the search unfolded. They obtained the warrant for the, um, for the purpose of the investigation. They breached the door, secured the premises, stood back, and then the military police entered and conducted the search. And I think it's very clear when we look at the correspondence that was sent to the Canadian Embassy by the military police when requesting that waiver, that they were of the position and they were of the understanding, based on their conversations with the U.S. authorities, that it was their investigation. And the purpose of that warrant was strictly to provide the Canadian military police with a mechanism to get inside. and With authority inside, to get inside. With authority. That's the word. Right? And that's the word that Section 32 uses. Thank you, Justice Brown. Except they had investigative jurisdiction. They obviously had investigative jurisdiction, but that's not what the Charter sets out as the basis for its application. Maybe I could pick up on Justice Brown's question. you You seem to be assuming not only that Section 32 applies people makes no reference to place, and thus it's an open door here, but that HAPE applies to this circumstance. And there's something in reading your factum, Ms. Mansour, that, that I didn't get, so it, if maybe you could help me with this. At various points in the factum, you insist upon the fact that legally and factually, this is not HAPE. This is visiting military personnel, and there's a logic that applies to the application of or the potential ap- extraterritorial application of Canadian law that's specific to military personnel, visiting military personnel, that's not foursquare with what the civilian context of HAPE. And I'm wondering what impact that has on, on the structure of your argument, because it seems to me that beyond the issue of of whether CFNIS is a state actor, that if there's an exception to the principle of sovereignty that would justify the application of the charter to the CNF, CFNIS's extraterritorial activity, it would operate differently for military personnel than civilian personnel, where the civil, the, the, one of the concerns in HAPE, as I understood it, was that Canadian law applied abroad would would risk breaching foreign sovereignty. Whereas the, the, the concern is not the same where military personnel are involved. Thank you, Justice Kassira. So uh, essentially our position is, in, in fact, the idea that HAPE does apply. Because when we look at the facts of this case, yes, they're unique from the facts that were presented in HAPE, but the exceptions that were outlined still apply. Now, the unfortunate part is that because, um, you know, HAPE was dealing with uh, a foreign investigation, not necessarily a Canadian military investigation, and it was a situation in which Turks and Caicos authorities were in charge of the investigation. They made it clear they were in charge of the investigation. They executed the search. The court didn't have an opportunity to... to canvas the breadth um, of the exception. But our position is essentially that HAPE does apply and the permissible rule exception does apply.
Because the test is, and, and I think this is where the court martial appeal court erred, is that they lost focus of the test because they were focusing on the, the existence of the U.S. warrant. Because the test asks, would applying the charter to the actions of the Canadian military police, so the Canadian state actors, cause or result in an objectionable interference or extraterritorial effect on the sovereignty of the United States? And our position is, respectfully, based on the facts, it would not because of the fact that it was understood that it was understood by the military authorities that it was their investigation. It was understood by their U.S. counterparts that this was a Canadian investigation. And they were doing their part pursuant to the NATO SOFA to assist. So would applying the charter to the actions of the military police result in an objectionable extraterritorial effect on the sovereignty of the United States? Our respectful position is that it would not. And if the... Charter may would I not stop you there and ask you, is that really the test that HAPE set down? Or is that the test out of Cook that um, is in a questionable jurisprudential position after HAPE? Thank you, Mrs. Cote. I think from our respectful position, HAPE solidified the test and confirmed the fact that if the Charter were to apply outside of Canada, it could only do so under two exceptions. And... Oh, yes. No. I thought, I'm so sorry, Justice Martin. Um, our position essentially is that, is that in HAPE it solidified the test. It had indicated that, and this court, court indicated that there are two situations in which the Charter can and will apply outside of Canada, and that's A, if there's a permissible international rule that permits in Canada's enforcement jurisdiction and does not result in an ob objectionable extraterritorial effect, or whether there's consent by the host nation um, that allows for the enforcement of Canadian jurisdiction. Didn't, Again, didn't, didn't HAPE reject the, extra, the objectionable uh, effect check test? When you're relating the permissible rule of international law exception with the objectionable extraterritorial effect test, but but I think Justice Martin is on to something. I, I, I think uh, I don't think that's hate. But what do I know? Brief intelligence. Just locating the quote in particular. So at, at paragraph 105, it talks about um, the court provides some guidance, and it talks about dictating what procedures are to be followed in a criminal investigation to another authority. And that's subjecting Canadian authority onto uh, another state, and, and that is what causes the issue. And it talks about how criminal investigations can implicate enforcement jurisdiction, and pursuant to the principles of international law, which is what all of this is grounded in. It's grounded in customary international law, and that's something that HAPE understood. And with respect to customary international law, it's the idea that every state has the right to its own sovereignty and the right to be protected from an interference or an objectionable interference from another state's sovereignty. Or well, another well, let's, point. Let, but let's uh, look at I paragraph. Oh, oh, sorry. Go comment. ahead, Justice. Oh, so, oh sorry. sorry. I, I, no, go I ahead. Don't mean to, 
at some point, I'd like you to comment on um, the analysis that's put forward in the uh, British Columbia Civil Liberties Factum, because a, a lot of your argument seems to be premised on this enforcement jurisdiction. And uh, what I, as I understand the, the uh, position that's being taken there, which is that that is not uh, the only way or even the better way to be uh, viewing this when what we have is a Canadian accused in a Canadian trial in a Canadian court charged with Canadian offences. And that really what we're, not, we're talking about here is um, just state activity, which has an extraterritorial uh, component, but we should be in a conflict of laws comparison rather than this notion of sovereignty and uh, extraterritorial effect. Thank you, Justice Martin. So, uh, essentially, with respect to, to that position, enforcement jurisdiction encompasses investigative jurisdiction, and that's why we're using that term. Um, and with respect to the conflict of law, in this particular case, we have permissible international rules, and that's why, from our respectful position, the HAPE analysis is the appropriate analysis. The NATO SOFA and the Vienna Convention are in place to deconflict this idea of jurisdiction and to make it clear between both parties who has jurisdiction, including investigative jurisdiction and criminal jurisdiction, over these individuals. So it's our respectful position that the HAPE test and the HAPE analysis is applicable and that this case fits within that analysis, both when we talk about consent or when we talk about permissible international law. Can I just pull you back to um, my earlier question? I'm looking at paragraph 93 of HAPE. And about halfway down, <clears throat> beginning with, in my view, in my view there's little logic in an approach that first determines that the activity falls under Section 32.1 and then questions at a second stage whether the Charter nonetheless ought to apply because of some objectionable extraterritorial effect. Rather, the extraterritorial implications of applying the Charter are, in my view, central to the question of whether the activity in question falls under Section 32.1 in the first place. The inquiry begins and ends with Section 32.1 of the Charter. That seems to be in tension with what you're submitting to us unless I'm not understanding you clearly, and that's possible. So, thank you, Justice Brown. So this idea of about an ex objectionable extraterritorial effect, that is rooted in customary international law, and that is um, a premise that Canada must respect. And the premise of the customary international law is this idea that Canada cannot interfere with another state's sovereignty. And um, there's a, a reference, another reference, if we're looking for... for the term of impermissible extraterritorial So, so is, that, is that paragraph wrongly decided? Sorry? Is that paragraph wrongly decided? No, Justice Brown. We're just looking at it through the context of, of Canada's obligations. I just have to look at it through a different lens than Justice LaBelle looked at it through. No, uh, Justice Brown. If I could direct your attention to paragraph 148 as well of HAPE. Okay. So essentially, I think it's saying the same thing, but just in different ways. And it talks about cooperation, and it, it notes that it tells us nothing about whether impermissible extraterritorial effects will occur. And an objectionable extraterritorial effect does not result from the mere fact of cooperation. So it's this term that keeps resurfacing, and respectfully, it's because it's a customary international law that Canada is obliged to abide by. And sorry, sorry, that's not in the majority reasons. Sorry? Paragraph 128 of HAPE? 
Yes. That's Justice Basterash's reason. Yes, Justice Brown. So the reason I'm directing your attention to that is because it uses that same buzzword. But the concept in HAPE deals with the same analysis, and it's whether applying the charter outside of Canada would cause some sort of effect that would be impermissible. And that's why these permissible international rule and consent exceptions were created, because the idea is to subject another territory to Canada's jurisdiction without those would violate customary international law. And again, customary international law is what deals with this idea of an objectionable extraterritorial effect. So we can just use a different phrase, but it's the idea that Canada can apply its jurisdiction outside of Canada so long as it does not interfere, we'll use that term, with the sovereignty of the host nation. And again, that's a, that's a principle of customary international law that Canada is obliged to abide by. And the court goes into the analysis and goes into discussion about customary international law earlier on in its decision, uh, beginning at, a, at around paragraph 35. So it's our position that whether we use that term or we use, let's say, uh, interference or objectionable interference, we're arriving at the same conclusion. Is there a permissible international law that applies a, allows us to apply the Charter to actions of Canadian state actors only? Again, we're not seeking to subject the Charter to the U.S. state actors or the state of Virginia. Is there a permissible international rule that allows us to apply the Charter to the actions of the Canadian military members or Canadian military police investigating our Canadian military members in this case? And the principle of sovereignty, Justice Brown, if it also assists, um, the court goes into that discussion around paragraph 41. And if, if I may, with respect to the analysis, when we look at whether we can apply the charter to the actions of the Canadian military members in this particular case, or we'll call them Canadian state actors, if the charter were not to apply to a case like this, a case where we have a clear demarcation of duties between states, a case where we have permissible legislation in place for the purpose of identifying Canada's enforcement and investigative jurisdiction over this individual. If the Charter were not to apply to this case, then in what case could Section 8 apply extraterritorially? It, we'd be hard-pressed to find that type of example. And respectfully, that type of interpretation, that narrow interpretation of the permissible rule exception renders that section of the Charter meaningless outside of Canada, and that cannot be what was envisioned. The court in HAPE was dealing with a Section 8. Yes, it did not have the facts to address the exceptions, so it didn't have to go into those exceptions, but had it had the, the position been that the Charter can apply outside of Canada when it comes to a Section 8, respectfully, it's our position that the court would have said as much. But it can. It can, and that's why those exceptions were created, and this is particularly a case that falls squarely within that within that exception, and thus the Charter ought to apply. And if this sorry, Court is I'm, having difficulty I'm, with the permissible... Sorry. I'm sorry, I'm just having trouble going back. I want to go back to the beginning here, because somebody needed a warrant to get into this place. Correct. And Virginia didn't say, okay, um, you get a Canadian warrant, that'll be just fine, and you can apply Charter law, and so on and so forth. 
And they didn't say that. They said, that is our bailiwick. We're going to do that. I'm having real trouble getting my head around how Canada, complying with the Charter, could get a warrant. Uh, They can't force Virginia to do that, surely, unless Virginia somehow consents. So the only warrant that they could get that you say would comply with VU is a Canadian warrant. But they don't have any authority to exercise that warrant down there. So where I'm having trouble here really is seeing how this kind of plays out. We know Virginia was not interested in prosecuting. We know that they were prepared to cooperate with the Canadian authorities and indeed probably say to the Canadian authorities, you take charge. This is your investigation, but you need our help, and we're, we will give you our help under the, uh, under the treaty. But that help means us getting a warrant that complies with our law in Virginia because we're dealing with property here. And, and so I can understand it if you said, you know, really they ceded control of this investigation to, to the Canadian authorities as far as they could because they're not interested in prosecuting. But there were still steps that were required. And so they got the warrant. You say it doesn't comply with VU. Others might say, yes, it does, because the issuing justice included both uh, search and and seizure. But, But let's assume it didn't. Then surely, if that's the case, Canada, I mean, what are they supposed to do? If you're going to say that they're in a catch-22. We can't get the warrant that would be constitutional in Canada. They're not going to give it to us. The only warrant they're going to give, us, give to us is one that wouldn't be constitutional in Canada. And if that's the case, I'm, I'm still staying with you for the moment, but it seems to me then there has to be a margin of appreciation applied and say, you know, what did this warrant, what, what did Virginia do in effect that was so terrible that would cause us to be really concerned about letting that evidence that was seized into evidence in Canada. It's a very large, long question, but I'm just having trouble putting the pieces together. Thank you, Justice Moldaver. So our position is that Virginia in and of themselves did nothing wrong. So we're not trying to subject the charter to the state of Virginia. And respectfully, um, it's our position. It's not that the U.S. authorities said, eh, we're not interested, you take him. It's our position that the NATO SOFA, so it's an agreement that both the U.S. and Canada consented to. And it's agreement that deconflicts jurisdiction and makes it clear who has jurisdiction over who. And the NATO SOFA section... Article 7, Section 1A, provides Canada with primary, as well as 3A, provides Canada with primary jurisdiction over the individual for committing offence and certain offences. And one of those offences, as outlined in the NATO SOFA, is if there's an alleged offence committed against another military member, which is what we had in this case. So it's not that Virginia essentially said, eh, we don't want him, you take him. It's that the NATO SOFA and that agreement, which they prescribed to, mandates that Canada had primary jurisdiction I'm with you over on him. All that. I'm with you on all that, but you still can't answer the question. Where and how does Canada get a warrant? And from whom? Yes. That would comply with our Constitution. That's when I'm... There's a disconnect here. Yes. Thank you, Justice Moldaver. This was interestingly the issue that arose at the standing court martial level. And, um, you know, military judge Peltier, he acknowledged the reasoning 
was flawed in the sense that, you know, he could not apply the charter from his perspective because of this inability to get a warrant. And it's this gap in legislation which is what's causing the concern. So respectfully, that's not for the appellant to answer what type of mechanism. There is no mechanism currently in place. Could Parliament create one? Theoretically, yes. Would it be ideal? Yes. One that perhaps complies with international legal obligations or NATO SOFAs that are in place? Yes. But is it necessary? No. Not in the facts of this particular case. Because we have the Vienna Convention, because we have the NATO SOFA, they fill in the gap and they provide Canada with the mechanism to obtain that evidence. So Section Article 7, Section 6A provides Canada with that mechanism and mandates the U.S. to assist Canada we're, 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 in their We're jurisdiction. confusing mechanisms with authority again. Aren't we? I mean, yes, they can they they can obtain a mechanism, but under whose authority? Look, I, I yes. don't mean to belabor this, I, but it is the text of Section 32. It doesn't say by whose mechanism or at whose instigation or whose action. You talk a lot about action. It's authority, and and I'm sorry, Ms. Minister, you're 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 eliding that point. I still don't understand your theory of the case for why. Um, Forces investigators were not were acting within the authority of Parliament mm-hmm. under that search and seizure because that Parliament didn't authorize that search and seizure. Thank you, Justice Brown. Respectfully, it's the appellant's position that Parliament did authorize a search and seizure, and that's by way. Well, of then the show end. me in the warrant where that's the case. Not the warrant. What we're referring to, Justice Brown, is the overarching authority that provided. That jurisdiction provided the authority to the warrant because the Vienna Convention, section or Article 31, sub 1, provides. They have jurisdiction over the investigation over the person. I get this, right? Yes. So that could only be waived. So gaining entry into the appellant's residence, the issuing of that warrant could only be provided with Canadian authorization. So yes, we have the warrant down here, but what supersedes that is the Canadian authorization. That's kind of of like saying just a run-of-the-mill search and seizure of a home is authorized by a prosecutor because the prosecutor has to sign off on on the application for the warrant. Respectfully, Justice Brown, I think it's bigger than that because we're dealing with an embassy. We're dealing with international agreements that Canada was obliged to adhere to. And that provided the basis for jurisdiction over that individual. It provided a basis for the protection from U.S. jurisdiction. And Canada can choose to waive it in full, in part. In this case, they chose to waive it in a very narrow exception. And that was strictly for the search of the residents. And Again, had this been a situation where U.S. authorities conducted the search, we'd be having a different discussion. But it was very clear. There was a clear demarcation of duties. So when we look at the warrant, we have to look at the authorization that existed above that. And that was Canadian authorization that the military police went and sought out themselves. And they sought that authorization, and they were the ones that executed that search. So the charter ought to be applied to their actions. So... Ms. Mansour, let's assume for a moment that we agreed with you that the Charter applied. Let's just assume that for the purposes of, of the next point, I think, and the next hurdle that you would have to deal with. Assuming that it applied to the investigative conduct of, uh, of uh, the Canadian actor, uh, in what way are you arguing that the um, search was unreasonable? And I would ask you specifically to address the uh, submissions made uh, by your friends that, in fact, the warrant itself 
includes uh, the, um, the electronic devices as well. Thank you, Justice Karakasanis. So uh, essentially that leads us back to that same reasoning. It's the idea that this warrant existed, yes, and, and like I had indicated before, as an example, if the warrant provided the authority for A, B, and C, if the Canadian authorization above that, that waived that immunity in a very particular way, did not provide that authority, then despite what was written in the warrant, the authorization for the search was limited to what Canada Authorized, And in this particular case, we're indicating that the search was not authorized by law because it went beyond what was necessary. So when we look at the Queen and Vu, um, particularly at paragraph 47... Sorry, are you saying that is it because you need to have two separate warrants? I'm just trying to... How did it go beyond what was necessary? Thank you, uh, Justice Gracchus. So, so, so essentially the idea is that, and our position is that the authorization provided by the Canadian Embassy was limited to the search of the individual's residence. And it didn't go beyond that. And we so know you, you have the view that uh, it does not include what is found in the residence, because when I read the, the letter, mm -hmm. the diplomatic note, it says that um, to waive the immunity uh, regarding the private residence, as well as his papers, correspondence, and property. So you think that it is not broad enough to cover electronic devices referred to in the, in the warrant? Thank you, Justice Cote. Yes, that is our position. Because according to the Queen and Vu, um, you know, electronic devices, they're different. They're not filing cabinets, cabinets. They're different receptacles. And they require specific authorization in order, and a clear, explicit authorization in order to search those devices because they can't contain such personal and vast information. So when we say that the search was not authorized by law and it went beyond what was provided, it's that the Canadian Embassy only provided authorization to search the residents. So that's the tangible products, not the search of the devices in particular. And so, we so the devices don't come within property because, because the, warrant, the warrant also included property for the purposes of the investigation. Thank you, Justice Brown. In terms of the authorization provided by the Canadian Embassy, it was limited to those tangible things. And we know um, from this Court's decision in the Queen and Vu that you need separate authorization to search the device. And respectfully, the actions of the military police demonstrate that they were aware of this requirement because when they went back to Canada, they obtained that specific authorization to search the devices. But this was after they had already searched the devices on scene. But and isn't, isn't it likely lies. that the language, papers, correspondence, and property in the diplomatic note reflects the language in the Vienna Convention, that this is diplomatic language and the context to which it applies plainly extends to electronic devices, otherwise the search would have been without really, without purpose. I mean, it, in other words, to give that sense to property, you really, aren't you proposing a sort of an unreasonable interpretation of that word? Thank you, Justice Kassir. It's our position that we're not, because the military police are the ones that made the request for the waiver of immunity and the partial waiver of immunity. They were aware of the obligation to obtain a separate warrant. Again, that was clear by their actions and their conduct and, and what they did after the fact. So had they wanted the search of the devices to be conducted on scene, that was something that they could have requested from the embassy. The embassy was merely responding to the request that was provided by 
the military police. And when we look at the language that's in the correspondence that was provided by the military police, they're merely requesting the search of the residence. They don't make reference to the fact that they are intending to search the devices while on scene. So, yes, had this been any other situation, um, and this was just maybe political jargon going back and forth, that may have been the case. But in this particular case, this is legislation. The Canadian Embassy... They're the ones that hold the immunity that the diplomat and the appellant benefited from. And the military police were the ones conducting the investigation. They determined how the investigation progressed, and they could have sought that authorization, but they didn't. And that's where the problem lies. And that's why, in our respectful submission, the search was not authorized by law in that sense. And if I could return, I see my my time is going down, and I just wanted to return um, to our second submission, if I may, um, with respect to the consent exception. So I I know that the permissible rule exception is a contentious exception. So I want to ensure that you understand from our perspective, from the appellant's respectful submission, that even if the permissible rule exception were not to apply in HAPE, the consent exception undoubtedly applies in this case because based on the facts of this case, the indicia of consent, both explicit by way of international law and implicit by the conduct of the U.S. authorities, that there was consent for the enforcement of Canadian juris, uh, Canadian who, who gave Who gave the consent? The, who, ga- who gave the consent specifically? The U.S. authorities. Who are the U.S. authorities that you're referring to? Understood. Thank you, Justice Brown. So this is twofold. In terms of the government of the United States, there are parties to the agreement. So let's talk about the legislative consent. And that provides explicit consent to the enforcement of Canadian jurisdiction in their territory. They are signatories to both the Vienna Convention and the NATO SOFA. And the Vienna Convention establishes the inviolability that the appellant benefited from while on U.S. soil and as well as his residence and and, um, his person. And the U.S. at the relevant time, again, was a signatory. This is something that they consented to. And this was something that wasn't contentious um, in in the lower court's decision. And I know uh, Military Judge Pelletier understands that that preposition. And additionally, the NATO SOFA, Article 7, Sections 1A, 3A, and 6A stipulate that the military police, the Canadian authorities, had jurisdiction over this individual in the investigation. So by way of explicit consent, we have the the U.S. authorities. And then also by complicit consent with respect to conduct. This was a Canadian-led investigation. It's plain and simple. Sergeant Partridge was the lead investigator. Um, At no point did the U.S. attempt to assert jurisdiction over the appellant or the investigation. The U.S. State Department was made aware of the actions of the military police while in their territory, and there's no evidence to suggest that they chose to interfere. The U.S. authorities agreed to assist, and... Sorry, who are those U.S. authorities? Right, the Alexandria Police Department. Those are not U.S. authorities. Those are state authorities. Does that matter? Respectfully, from our respectful position, can 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 a municipal police force operating under under the law of Virginia be taken as implicitly consenting on behalf of the government of the United States? Thank you, Justice Brown. Respectfully, yes, uh, and particularly when the U.S. State Department is advised of what's occurring. Put aside the U.S. State Department. Can a municipal police officer acting under the authority of state law? state, that is, the state of Virginia, like subnational law, 
be taken as implicitly consenting on behalf of the government of the United States? Thank you, Justice Brown. So U.S. State Department aside, it's our respectful submission that this idea, and I know my my friend has included that in their material, this idea of high-level state consent um, is not required. I'm not even saying high-level. They're not even the same government. Thank you, Justice Brown. It's our respectful submission that the Alexandria Police Department represented the U.S. authorities. And when we talk about the NATO SOFA, the NATO SOFA mandates this cooperation between states. So when the Alexandria police are the ones responding to that, it's our position that they are the ones providing their implicit consent by way of their conduct. And respectfully, in HAPE, it doesn't state that, you know, this high-level government authority is required. Um, So it's our respectful submission that that is sufficient. But again, in this particular case, the U.S. State Department was aware of the actions of the So provincial fishery officer investigating a, a, fisheries, a, a fisheries offense on a non-tidal body of water in British Columbia um, and helping U.S. authorities in that regard for whatever reason can be taken as having implicitly consented on behalf of the government of Canada. Respectfully, Justice Brown, uh, our position is that it may, but that's not the issue essentially we're dealing with. Uh, how, we're dealing- I, I don't get that. I, don't, uh, I just want to signal to you that, yeah. to me, is cuckoo. Right, the idea that someone from a different government can be taken as consenting on behalf of another government, to me, I, I might as well be taken as consenting on behalf of Germany. It's Virginia and the government of the United States are not the same government. Thank you, Justice Brown. It's our position, respectfully, that the U.S. authorities and the subsect of that U- U.S. authority, so whether it's the state of Subset of U.S. authorities. But all part of the U.S. authorities. It's the national... It's, it's like the there's a vibe so going on here, right? It's just the vibe of the thing, right? It's, it's, it's not the United States, but it's Virginia. But they are Americans, too, and have, you know, let me point to SOFA, and, and there's stuff there. But, 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 yeah. Anyways. Respectfully, Justice Brown, yeah. it's our position that they still are police authority. And, again, the U.S. State Department was made aware of that so point. Aside from that, aside yes. from that. And there was consultation with the U.S. State Department between the Alexandria, the sorry, the Alexandria Police Department and the State of Virginia, because they were made aware of this fact that it's our position that that explicit and implicit consent is available. And again, um, consent can come in different forms, and conduct can reflect consent. And in this particular case, it's our respectful submission that it does. The U.S. State Department made no attempt to interfere. Why? Because they knew that this investigation was subject to Canadian jurisdiction. And the actions of the U.S. authorities and the Alexandria Police Department reflected that. They obtained the warrant to assist the military police. They breached the door, secured the premises, stepped aside, and said, Canada, do your thing. And the Canadian military police executed that search. At no attempt did the the Alexandria Police Department attempt to interfere. At no point did they attempt to maintain control over the evidence. At no point did they attempt to engage in the search. They understood that this was a Canadian investigation pursuant to their obligations under the NATO SOFA. And when those items were seized, they maintained... They were maintained in Canadian military police possession and taken back to Canada. So it's our respectful submission that the consent exception applies, and thus the charter ought to apply. And and I see that my time is running out, if I may conclude. So we have to remember that this is a case 
about the appellant. This is a Canadian citizen subject to a Canadian investigation for a Canadian criminal offence. And HAPE provided this opportunity for us to apply the Charter to the actions of Canadian state actors outside of Canada. And respectfully, when we have a situation where we have permissible legislation that is applicable and clearly identifies investigative jurisdiction between parties and it the Charter does not apply in this particular context, then in what case could it possibly apply, rendering the Charter pragmatically meaningless outside of Canada? And that's the concern. And with respect to military members, the portability portability of the military justice system allows Canadian criminal law to follow our members, like Corporal McGregor, outside of Canada and apply that Canadian criminal law to them. And they can be serving anywhere in the world, and they're still subject to that Canadian reach and that Canadian prescriptive and adjudicative jurisdiction, as well as enforcement jurisdiction. So with it, the Charter should apply. And it's our position that both exceptions in the HAPE test are satisfied in this particular case. The Vienna Convention and the NATO SOFA are permissible international rules that necessitate the application of the Charter, as well as the consent exception. The consent exception does apply. And the Charter must apply therefore, to the actions of the military police. Again, we're not subjecting this. We're not attempting to suggest that it applies to the state of Virginia only to the actions of the military police. And it would not interfere with customary international law to apply that charter standard to our actors. Subject to any questions, those are our submissions. Thank you very much. Mr. Vandert. We'll ask Mr. Vannert. Can you hear us? Chief Justice, shall I begin? Yes, go ahead, please. Okay. Yeah, we, we cannot hear you, uh, Mr. Vannert. I couldn't hear you. Can you hear me now? Now we can hear you, yes. All right, I'll begin then. Thank you. Thank you, Chief Justice. Chief Justice, Justices, Justice Brown directed us to a key passage in HAPE at paragraph 93, where the majority said that the extraterritorial implications of applying the charter are central to the question whether the activity in question falls under section 32.1. That was indeed the ratio in HAPE, and the majority concluded that charter scrutiny of the conduct of Canadian officials working abroad involves an extraterritorial application of Canadian law contrary to international law. But that's not so. It is so, not So contrary. you're going to say flat out, head-on collision, that HAPE was dead wrong and you're going to put us right? I'm going to say that at the heart of HAPE is an international law error. And it was caused, as Justice Binney tells us in his reasons, by the fact that there were no submissions on the international law question before the court. The court had no help at all about this. The court was trying to get international law right, but it hit the post. And so if we correct that, the uh, uh, confusion in my respectful submission that comes from the HAPE analysis can be cleared up. And, and, and the correction is this. 
it is not contrary to either international law or international comity for a Canadian court and a Canadian criminal trial taking place here to permit a criminally accused person to invoke his rights under the Canadian Charter. And that is so even when the Canadian state conduct that's being complained of took place in a foreign country. There's simply nothing extraterritorial going on in such a judicial proceeding. Why? Because it happens here. Now, the Hape Court was right to note that under international law, states generally may not exercise coercive power outside their borders without the consent of a foreign state. But that principle is simply not engaged when Canadian judges decide constitutional claims concerning the conduct of Canadian state officials. Again, even when those officials were exercising their functions outside the country. The judiciary is not an expeditionary force. It doesn't coerce anyone beyond our frontiers. The predicament in HAPE is not about a conflict between Canadian law and international law, even though the majority thought so. It's a conflict between domestic criminal laws and procedures and foreign criminal laws and procedures. Canadian officials, when they go abroad, must comply with the host state's laws and procedures, and they're going to be different from ours. But the conduct of those officials must ultimately be judged in our country against Canadian constitutional standards. And, and, and the court in HAPE was right that, this, uh, that a rigid application of our own constitutional standards to those foreign investigations is just impossible. And Justice Moldaver suggested that there's gonna be a need for a margin of appreciation. That's what motivates the court in HAPE and they're right about that. But the way to meet that concern, the way to avoid parochialism and not be the ugly Canadian insisting on our procedures and our laws being followed. And we say we need two warrants and you say you only need one and all that. The way to avoid all of that is not by disentitling criminally accused persons to access charter protection. It's to be done through remedial discretion. That is to say that when a, an accused person challenges Canadian participation in some foreign investigation or proceeding, the court should first determine whether the official's conduct infringed or denied some charter right. And then if so, do as section 24 says, consider an appropriate and just remedy in the circumstances. And that inquiry should be informed by international comedy considerations, the considerations that the Hape Court was rightly motivated by. But the Hape Court puts those into section 32 and effectively disapplies parts of the charter. And I say that the, the, the proper place for those considerations is at the remedial stage. In some cases, the difference between Canadian and foreign standards is going to be minor. And, and comity is going to call for exactly what Justice Moldaver said and what international human rights law speaks about, which is a margin of appreciation in favor of the foreign approach. But there could be other cases where the gap between what's permissible abroad and what Canadian constitutional law expects of our officials is going to be so great that the court has to grant relief. And that too is consistent with hate. The hate court rightly, rightly said, international comedy ends where fundamental human rights violations begin. Excuse me, Chief Justice, if I may ask a question, how is what you're proposing consistent with the wording of Section 32? It's consistent with Section 32 because the charter applies federally and provincially. It, it, there's, there's no place in which the charter does not apply. It applies federally and provincially to all government actors at either level of our government. And that, it, it, it is a full 
uh, coverage there. There's no, there's no breaks in it. And the difficulty with the hate decision and my submission is that it creates a break, it creates a gap where there was not intended to be one under Section 32. Thank you very much. Uh, Lee West. Chief Justice, Justices. The text of Section 32 is clear, as is this court's jurisprudence in Slate Communications and McKinney, uh, that the conduct of government officials falls within the authority of Parliament and is subject to the Charter. Justice Brown, to address your concerns, if we look actually to paragraph 94, just below the paragraph you identified earlier, the majority wrote, the fact that a state actor is involved is not in itself sufficient. The activity in question must also fall within the matters within the authority of parliament. Uh, with respect, this is wrong under international law. As a matter of fact and of law, this finding is incorrect. Canadian legislation can and does authorize the extraterritorial enforcement of Canadian law, and parliament has passed legislation allowing such conduct under the National Defense Act, under the Canadian Security uh, Intelligence Services Act, under the Communication Security Establishment Act. This conduct may violate international law and foreign law if it's done without host state consent, but that doesn't mean it falls outside the authority of parliament. The Canadian Armed Forces, for example, can and has deployed abroad without consent of a foreign state in Kosovo in 1999, in Afghanistan in 2001, the CAF conducted its operations abroad without consent of the local governments. Yeah, and, and, and extensively in Germany in World War II, for example. <laughs> and certainly those de deployments fall under the authority of, of Parliament. But per the majority's reasoning in hate, CAF members deployed in Afghanistan in those early months were not protected by the Charter because Canada didn't have the Taliban's consent. Similarly, had the CAF deployed ground forces to Syria to fight ISIS... Cape tells us that the Charter would not govern the actions of the CAF nor protect CAF members without Canada first obtaining the consent of the Assad regime. This gap is unnecessary because it was created by a flaw in the, in the majority's reasoning in hate. All this court needs to find to rectify that gap is to reach a straightforward conclusion that when Canadian federal officials are authorized by Parliament to exercise Canada's jurisdiction in a foreign state, they fall within the authority of Parliament. Now, this finding is not only common sense, it is consistent with international law, namely the rules of attribution under the law of state responsibility. Under customary international law, state responsibility will attribute the actions of Canadian government officials to the government of Canada in almost every instance. In other words, their actions fall within the authority of Parliament, regardless of where they occur. Whether that conduct is attributable to state and such, and as such under a state's authority, has nothing to do with whether that conduct was lawful under international law. More importantly, the principles of jurisdiction permit the extension of Canadian rules and obligations on Canadian officials anywhere in the world and the adjudication of that conduct in Canadian courts. This is the real issue. Finally, no international court has ever suggested that the principles of jurisdiction or sovereignty uh, make it impermissible for a court to place additional rules and obligations on its uh, government officials when they operate abroad and then adjudicate 
whether or not they were made out in their own courts. The ICCPR interpreted by both the International Court of Justice and the UN Human Rights Committee have found that a state's human rights obligations can apply extraterritorially. The same has been found by the European Court of Human Rights and several foreign courts, including the UK Supreme Court. In each instance, they have found that their state's human rights obligations traveled with their government officials abroad. If international law did not permit this, how could these courts, who are also obligated to interpret their human rights instruments and their um, obligations in line with international uh, law, have come to the same conclusion? The problem is with HAPE and the HAPE finding that uh, matters fall outside the authority of parliament if they violate international law. That's not the test. Moreover, the consent exception articulated in HAPE strips Canada of its sovereign right to constrain the actions of its officials. It gives foreign states a veto over the application of the Canadian constitution. Again, there's no basis for giving Assad or the Taliban this veto power under international law. Thank you. Thank you very much. Jesse Hartery. Good morning, Chief Justice. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. The Canadian Constitution Foundation intervenes in this appeal to make two points. First, that the actions of Canadian officials abroad should be subject to scrutiny for constitutional compliance. And second, that the concerns that are expressed in this court's jurisprudence on the extraterritorial application of the charter can be accounted for in assessing charter compliance, as Justice Bastarash explained in his concurring reasons in HAPE. And this goes to a point that Justice Moldaver raised earlier in the margin of appreciation that we raise in our factum. Now, we say that this area of law should be aligned with the text and structure of the Constitution, and my friends uh, have already addressed the textual argument uh, and the, the points raised by Justice Brown this morning. But I would add that Justice Basterash addresses this at paragraph 161 of his concurring reasons uh, and says that if, if this does not fall within the authority of Parliament, then the officers at issue would have no jurisdiction whatsoever to conduct an investigation abroad. They would have no jurisdiction to be there in the first place. Secondly, we would say that if that was the case, if this did not fall within the authority of Parliament, then the Cotter cases would have to be revisited. Um, and we say that that should not be the case. And the ECHR, the European Court of Human Rights, rejected this argument or considered the argument and rejected it in the Alskany case. And this goes to our third point in our fact, and which is that the Commonwealth jurisprudence that we cite helps show that contrary to the holding in HAPE, there is no rule of international law that prevents a state like Canada from applying its law to its own officials. And what we would add to that is that the ICCPR and the interpretation that's offered by the UN Human Rights Committee, which predates the adoption of the Charter, and so provides relevant context to interpreting the meaning of Section 32, suggests that Canada is in fact obliged to apply the Charter abroad. More importantly, the court has created an exception to the bar in HAPE for violations of international law and fundamental human rights. Yet we know that the Charter is the means by which Canada implemented its international human rights law obligations in 1982. And we say that choice should be respected. Now, to the point raised by Justice Jamal and, and Justice Moldaver, 
the test that we're proposing, we say that you can account for the circumstances like this in assessing charter compliance, sometimes within the right itself, as is the case here with Section 8, or pursuant to Section 1. We're asking the court to adopt a three-part test to determine whether the conduct of Canadian officials abroad is consistent with the charter. First, are they acting pursuant to valid laws or procedures? Second, if so, is their conduct substantively different from the principles emanating from the charter? And three, if so, is a substantive difference reasonable or justified in the circumstances? Now, in our factum, we outline our proposed test in some detail, but I'd say that the thrust of our position is that the conduct of Canadian officials abroad will only be inconsistent with the Charter in exceptional cases. Specifically, we're asking the court to adopt the shock the conscience standard from its extradition and deportation case law when undertaking the third step of our proposed framework. We do this for practical reasons, because this is a framework that Canadian courts know well, but also because it conveys the idea that only gross human rights violations will justify the intervention of courts. This assures citizens that their fundamental rights will be respected while giving the executive some room to maneuver abroad. And we say in our factum that in fact, courts routinely assess state conduct for compliance with rights and freedoms in pluralistic contexts. This court, for example, has adopted a similar approach in order to account for Canada's federal structure and accommodate the civil law tradition and culture. And the European Court of Human Rights has done the same thing. So in this case, we're asking the court to look to democracies generally in establishing the relevant consensus when determining whether the conduct of Canadian officials abroad is reasonable or justified. Now, in our factum, yes, I see a mic, no. <laughs> in our factum, we briefly address how each of these steps um, can be undertaken, and there's debate between the parties at each of these steps, and we leave that to you. But we note as well that the military judge here did apply Justice Basterash's framework in the alternative, and so we'd submit that to the court as well for its attention. In sum, this court's extradition and deportation case law shows that Canadian courts already have the tools to deal with cases like these. We ask the court to say so clearly and to reaffirm the importance of the rule of law in a free and democratic society. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. Mr. Gerald Chan. Thank you, Chief Justice and Justices. On behalf of the David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights, I echo much of what my friend from the BCCLA uh, said in his submissions, but I want to approach that issue through the lens of the trial fairness exception that HAPE articulated in the subsequent case law that is interpreted. Under HAPE, even where you don't have the foreign state's consent, even where Canada doesn't have the foreign state's consent, a Canadian court can scrutinize the manner in which Canadian state actors have obtained evidence abroad and grant a charter remedy, such as exclusion under 24.2. In doing so, however, HAPE limits the Canadian court to looking at two specific provisions of the charter, section seven and 11D, insofar as they relate to trial fairness. And the question is whether there is a principled basis to limit the analysis to these two specific provisions, and we say there is not. As the Court Martial Appeals Court pointed out in this case, in its reasons below, paragraph 57, sections 8 to 14, the other legal rights in the Charter, 
are illustrative, are merely illustrative or specific manifestations of the rights in Section 7. And indeed, this court recognized that all the way back in 1984 in the motor vehicle reference. Now, Hape says you can distinguish between Section 7 and 11D on the one hand from the other charter rights, the other legal rights, because Section 7 and 11D merely call for an ex post facto review of Canadian state conduct rather than an ex ante prescription of what the Canadian state actors can do abroad. But even if you leave aside for the moment whether that distinction matters for jurisdiction, that distinction, I would submit, has proven to be unworkable. And if you look to the court martial appeals court's analysis in this case, when they applied the trial fairness exception, so first they say the charter doesn't apply under hate, they then get to the trial fairness exception, and what they do is they look at whether the search was authorized by a warrant, whether it expressly authorized the search of computers, whether it was executed in a reasonable manner, and in any event, whether the evidence should be excluded under 24.2 pursuant to the three grant factors. That's a classic Section 8 24.2 analysis and is not very different from simply applying Section 8 from the outset. Well, you know, it seems to me we're making a, a devastating argument that there is no problem here. That, that there's an adequate and remedy for an accused. And it seems you've cut the ground off from under your two feet. Well, I, with respect, Justice Rowe, I would, I would go in the other direction. What I would say is if you accept that Section 7 and 11D can be applied to provide a remedy for the actions of Canadian state actors abroad in a Canadian courtroom, there's no principal basis to stop there and to not examine the actions of Canadian state, state actors abroad under the principles of the Charter and the provisions of the Charter that are well known to Canadian state actors, namely sections 8 to 14 and the other Charter rights. There's no principled basis to distinguish between those two because in either scenario... But as a matter of pure logic, you've told us, which I think is a dubious proposition, that what's in 8 and 14 is entirely encompassed in 7. And therefore, if you have the protection of 7, you have the protection of 8 through 14. That's what you've told us. Well, let me first address the, the premise of your question, Justice Rowe. I, I would respectfully challenge the notion that it's a dubious proposition because what this court said, going all the way back to the motor vehicle reference. But in any event, you, this court can add value by clarifying the law in this respect, by clarifying that the charter can apply to the actions of Canadian state actors abroad, not simply trial fairness, which in and of itself is not a particularly clear notion. And we see that from the way the court martial's appeal court applied that analysis in this case. Frankly, we see that from the arguments being put forward to you by the uh, Attorney General of Ontario and the respondent in this case, in this case as to what trial fairness should mean. They Mr. Don't take Mr. The, Chan, they don't I'm just trying to understand this practically. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm trying no. to understand this practically. If the foreign state says, forget about search warrants, we don't bother with them over here. What is it that you want? We'll go down and break the door of the home open at night and, and we'll have no warrant, no nothing, and we'll seize whatever it is you want. doesn't matter. You can take it. Now, what is the state actor from Canada supposed to do? I mean, I, I'm trying to understand where this goes because almost, almost certainly when that evidence comes back to Canada – you know, it would be the kind of situation where it seems to me the court would throw it out uh, on the basis that it would just bring the administration of justice into utter disrepute if we relied on evidence of that nature. That's totally foreign to the values we have. 
But I'm trying to understand, what can they do? What, what are they supposed to do? Or is your point and all the point of the interveners here just to say, hey, it does apply. HAPE got it wrong. It does apply to state actors. But I'm trying to look at what practically this means. And sorry, I'm, you're over the time. And no, I'll, try, I'll, I'll try to answer your question, Chief Justice, if I may, uh, as briefly as I can. Go ahead, please. All we are saying, we are saying that HAPE, that HAPE got it wrong as far as the charter should apply. Section 8 should apply in that scenario. But, of course, we agree with our, our colleagues that there is a margin of appreciation there. And not just at the remedial stage, but Section 8 in and of itself doesn't mandate specific procedures such as a warrant in every case. What Section 8 does is call for a reasonable search and seizure. You can build a margin of appreciation into that, and it would be both more principled and practical and coherent to do so by applying Section 8 rather than relying on an amorphous notion of trial fairness. Thank you, Chief Justice. Thank, Thank you, Justice. Mr. Chen. The court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. Please be seated. Patrice Germain. Chief Justice, Justices, I'll be sharing our time with uh, Colonel Natasha Thiessen, uh, about half our time, so uh, around uh, 30 minutes each. My colleague will expand on this further, but the core issue in this case is simple to resolve. Section 8 of the Charter did not apply to the search of the appellant's residence in the United States because Virginia state law under which it was conducted is not within the authority of parliament or a provincial legislature. This was correctly assessed by the military judge in the court-martial appeal court. As a result, we invite this court to dismiss this appeal. But since the appellant and several interveners make bold claims about gaps in the protection afforded to our Canadian Armed Forces members or CAF members when they are abroad, I will first explain the military context of our deployments and why there is no gap. It's important for us as respondent here, but also as representative of the Military Prosecution Service for this court to understand this and also for the CAF members will read your decision to also know this. To do so, I'll provide um, our central thoughts about this case, the main points we want to leave you with today. I'll talk about Canada's obligation to maintain discipline over its forces abroad at all time. I will talk about the Code of Service Discipline. And finally, I will address the NATO SOFA, which is short for North Atlantic Treaty Organization Status of Forces Agreement. Then Colonel Tissin will explain how this case is a straightforward application of hate and describe to you why the Charter did not and could not apply to the search of the appellant's residence in the United States. She will finally explain why this is not the proper case to revisit hate as some of the interveners would want this court to do. Now, these are the two points we want to emphasize today. First, CAF members are protected by the Charter when the Code of Service Discipline is enforced by our military, uh, military investigators or prosecutors, and this anywhere in the world. The only exception to this principle is in the rare occasion where our laws can't, find, can't be enforced. 
under international law for a specific investigative step. Therefore, the protection of the Charter cannot find application. This will become clear in our submissions. Second, the framework established in HAPE is sound in principle, effective in practice, and works well with the military justice system, as this case demonstrates, and as my colleague will explain to you. It provides guidance to our CAF investigators in these occasional situations where they need to seek assistance from foreign authorities. At paragraph 105 of HAPE, this court says that the enforcement of the Canadian criminal legislation in another country can only take place with consent from that foreign state or by the application of another rule of international law. One of these circumstances will always apply to our military justice system when our troops operate outside Canada. There is never any gap. If there is no state from which to obtain consent, then the military justice system operates independently. Any state that deploys or projects its forces abroad has the obligation under international law to maintain control over those forces and to ensure their internal discipline at all times. As we explained in our material, this principle can be traced back to the concept of the law of the flag, as it's, it is described in the 1812 Schooner Exchange U.S. case, which concerned the question of jurisdiction over an imperial French warship visiting okay, the United I, States. May I interrupt you right now to ask the question then? Um, understanding all of those principles and that the Charter generally will travel with the troops under the law of the flag, um, it seems to me that it's a very small step to say that the Charter should apply uh, to... Uh, um, uh, in this instance, uh, because Corporal McGregor, uh, by the happenstance, didn't live on the base and lived in a different uh, kind of living arrangement. Um, so it just seems to me that all the principles that you're bringing here sort of suggest that there is a gap. And um, what's the problem with filling it with uh, the comparable uh, situation that would apply to any other member of the CAF? Thank you, Justin Martin. I, I would say the following is that there is no gap uh, in the sense that if ever there is no consent, our military justice system will apply completely and therefore Canadian law will be enforced and therefore the charter protections that accompanies these laws, especially when we talk about criminal law, will be uh, in place and the protection will be afforded. But Where let we me say just, is, is my assumption correct, which is that if Corporal McGregor had been living on a base, the Charter would have applied uh, just in a straight-up fashion here? You are correct. And as a matter of fact, uh, this is where I was going, is that when there is a consent, first of all, when our troops deploy uh, with the consent of an nation, we maintain our jurisdiction, and when there is consent, we get into an agreement akin to the NATO SOFA, or whether it's the NATO SOFA or any kind of uh, status of forces as a punctual agreement, and where we will concede some jurisdiction with that host nation is when we trust the legal system of that host nation. Uh, and, and when we do so, then it is open as part of the agreement for that host nation to prescribe when 
the jurisdiction, the concurrent jurisdiction will um, interact. And whereas in this case, where if outside of a base, for instance, the territorial reach of the code of service discipline ceases. And in these cases, HAPE provides the framework to answer the question as to who should authorize what. But I'm sorry, I'm coming back to the gap because the argument over here, because the argument is that the issuance of the warrant was not within the authority of Canada. The issuance of the warrant was um, was a local, uh, the the authority of a foreign state. So if that is so, why? I mean, I'm looking at section 32, and I'm reading language which is very broad. All state actors in respect of all matters within the authority of Parliament. And my question to you then is, why does the issuance of a warrant? at that level of particularity, why is it that we're examining whether that is within the authority of Parliament when what we're really talking about here is a charter right against unreasonable search and seizure by a Canadian state actor? And the issuance of a warrant is just one component of determining whether the Canadian actor's actions were reasonable. So I'm just having a great deal of uh, difficulty understanding the underlying premise that Section 32 um, is not not, um, looked at broadly, but looked at actually examined in the context of a particular warrant, which was the means by which they got in the door, and uh, uh, and why, in fact... um, why, in fact, we need to have a gap when our charter is flexible enough to take into consideration uh, when someone has to act, when, when a Canadian actor needs the assistance or authority of a foreign state, and that uh, would... Um, um, it's, it's flexible enough to recognize and respect the jurisdiction of foreign authorities. So that's a long question, but I, I guess what I'm doing is questioning the underlying basic principles of your arguments. I understand your question, uh, Justice Sanis. I'll say the following, and I think I think a lot of the interveners, and my my colleague will add to this, but a lot of the interveners uh, make an, a mistake when they say, and perhaps this is the source of a question, when they say, if we can uh, apply Section 7 and 11D here in Canada, then it means we could apply Section 8. And I think the assumption that allows them to say this is that Section 8 does not have an effect on the ground at the time of investigation. But it does. The effect of any standard, even uh, if we go back to the words of uh, Section 8 that just talks about reasonableness, the effect of any standard that would be assigned to that Section 8 criteria, even if it's a tentative um, definition that would apply abroad, would have an impact on the ground at the time of the investigation. And that would have an extraterritorial effect, especially in the case of Section 8, where we talk about a search and seizure of, of a residence, which is a very um, high sovereignty action. So, and so, okay. so the effect you're saying is just because it's on the territory. It's in no way inconsistent with their authority. It's in no way disrespectful. But you're saying the fact that it happens in that residence, no matter what, the Charter can't apply? It can't apply because, first of all, Section 32, as uh, alluded by uh, your colleague Justice Brown, uh, 
the action here is not the global investigation or the status of investigator of those conducted investigation, which could go to make... I mean, why? Why do we have to take it down to the level of granularity that it's the warrant that's at issue here? Well, because the, the action in Pune in this very case is a search and seizure. And while their, their conduct in general, or what I mean is their status as investigators, could go to defining them as actors of the state, so the first prong, but the specific conduct in this case, and to which relate the words of Section 8, is the search and seizure. And this is not within the authority of Parliament. And the thing is, as some interveners try to say, is they try to say, let's redefine Section 30, uh, 32, sorry if I said 38, Section 32, uh, redefine it without considering the interpretation presumption of compliance with inter international law. That is, that is all good if you work on the assumption that Section 8 doesn't have any impact on the ground, but if it does, because it does, it will influence how investigators operate outside Canada. So, Mr. Germain, uh, so to follow up on that, you say that uh, the search in Warren was not within the authority of Parliament. I understand, that. I understand that it was issued by uh, the law of a uh, state, but the Canadian state actors who were there after, when they were uh, doing the triage uh, in the residence, they were, they were acting under what authority? I mean, the Canadian investigator, they were not working for the state of Virginia. Of Virginia. Well, they were working under their authorities, correct? Under, so, under the Virginia uh, state authority, you say? Yes, under the legal umbrella of the uh, state of Virginia, correct? Were they not acting under the authority of both? the warrant and their obligations as a Canadian state actor. Yes, and I think that uh, you're correct, Justice, and that would mean that they meet the first threshold of they are actors of Canada. There's no doubt about that. But then their action, when they enter that door and throughout the search, is all under the legal umbrella of the uh, state of Virginia so, warrant, which, if I may add, included a provision to search the devices itself, which is akin to the requirement I, I, we have. I understand to... that, but what you're asking us to say is that that investigator, when he was actually conducting the search in the premises, was not acting in respect of a matter within, his authority, within the authority of Parliament. His investigation of that particular crime, doing a search of those premises, which was, yes, authorized by the warrant, but also authorized by his various duties and responsibilities. Uh, you're asking us to just say that there was a gap there. But uh, it depends what you mean by gap. There was no enforcement possible. So it goes back to uh, uh, many justices' question. What would have been the option? There was no alternative. Why are we talking about enforcement, coercion? He was conducting a search, and his conduct... In, in any event, at this point, no, that, I think you have my point. I totally understand. I, 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 wonder, I wonder if it might be helpful in thinking this through and going back to your point about, well, the impugned action was the search and the seizure. Might your answer to my colleague Justice Karakasanis be different if the challenge was actually to the obtaining of the warrant? On, on whatever grounds. I don't know Section 15. I hear Section 7 is marvelous and encompasses all kinds of things. We don't need 8 to 14 of the Charter. Um, but if there's some other challenge, basis for a challenge to, say, the obtaining of the warrant, 
Would your answer to my colleague be be different? Would would that not fall within the language of 32 then? Well, it could very well. Right. Uh, and my colleague... At what the nature of the challenge was? The challenge was to the obtaining of the warrant? Well, the challenge is to the admission of evidence obtained under a search and seizure. Right. Yes, and, and right. my colleague will talk more about this, because in this case there is consent. And uh, <clears throat> I will explain shortly how this consent interacts with that uh, specific investigation. And my colleague will explain shortly that actually the consent by the NATO SOFA included all the investigative steps all the way to the search. And therefore, in these cases, there was an enforcement of the Code of Service Discipline directly by consent and all the way after the search. And that's why, for instance, this, uh, the appellant was arrested and given his right in the United States is 10B rights. Because the charter applied to that arrest, these CFNS investigators had enforcement power because of the consent of the NATO so far and did this. But in the very window of the search, obtaining the search warrant and conducting the search was prescriptively restricted in the NATO so far. So the same instrument that provided consent from the United States to conduct that investigation prescribed that in these very circumstances, we, the investigators would need to have recourse to United States authorities. Okay, I'm going to insert this here because I can't think of when the right point to insert it is, but I do want to make the point. Is this not, is there not an element of confusion which has crept into the analysis here, at least the submissions, because on the one hand, uh, Corporal McGregor is a member of the Canadian Forces, and therefore his presence in the United States is governed to some degree by the SOFA. But he's also the military attaché, isn't he? And Correct. therefore, it is by virtue of being the military attaché that he has diplomatic immunity, not by virtue of being a member of the forces. Correct. And so, and so the, the, lift, the waiving of the immunity, in a sense, didn't matter that he was a member of the forces. It was, it was because of his diplomatic status. So I'm not sure that this kind of plays into your analysis, but in the submissions until now, the two seem to have been, uh, how can I put it? The relationship between the two has not been maintained with any clarity. And so I just mention it now because there's two lines of authority here. There's two sets of things happening because he's, in a sense, got two hats. He's Canadian forces, but he's also a diplomat. I'll leave it at that. Justice Rowe, I, I, I understand your question, and it goes back to Justice, uh, Justice Brown's comments. Uh, the Vienna Convention and the immunity protection is not an authority of any kind. It was, in this case, something that applied just because he happened to be also part of the diplomatic you know, mission to the United States. But it, it is, in this case, something that needed to be removed just to allow the United States to uh, co to, to, to provide this cooperation needed by the C CFNIS, and actually that is mandated in the NATO SOFA that says both the receiving and sending state will cooperate with each other to ensure the uh, execution of the jurisdiction of each, each parties. So we needed to lift this uh, immunity to allow this. And in no sense did that warrant or not, that um, diplomatic note needed any kind of uh, language akin to a warrant or uh, of that nature. But your friends that make a very simple point, which is that the CF, uh, NIS, and Corporal McGregor uh, are on U.S. soil 
by authority of Parliament. How do you address that? Yes, they are by authority of uh, Parliament, uh, and also enforcing this the Code of Service Discipline, which is embedded in the National Defense Act, with the consent of the United States as a uh, as a, a permi uh, permissive rule. In this case, when this is enforced, the protection of the charter accompanies that all the way till that consent ceases. And the consent ceases when it's about a territorial, a territorial enforcement outside a base or camp, when there is no agreement uh, with the United States to occupy such base or camp with units or formation uh, specifically. When a member is outside such area living in a private house in the local communities, the consent we just said existed ceases to exist. After the search, that consent starts again. Can you explain to me, can you explain to me you drew a distinction earlier between the arrest and the search? How, 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 does, that, how does that distinction play out here, assuming that the arrest is made off the base? How, how does that? Yes, for sure. So as it was alluded to by my friend, the National Defense Act does have you know, a prescriptive international reach, but uh, it also has uh, an enforcement reach outside Canada. And it includes that the military police can arrest CAF members anywhere in the world. Courts martial can take place anywhere in the world. Um, and the, uh, the, even the Canadian military commander can issue a warrant for the search of a CAF member's private residence and quarters in a foreign state so long as the, uh, this quarter is under the control of the Canadian Armed Forces. And everything I just described there was consented to by the United States to be exercised in their territory, and the Charter would apply to all these, um, let's say, enforcement powers. But that last one I just mentioned, the search of a CAF private, um, private quarters in a foreign state, it needs to be under the control of the, cap, the Canadian forces for this warrant to be issued, which happened to match one of the conditions in the NATO SOFA that says that you can police your camp if you are in a unit or a formation, which means somewhat of a large and autonomous group, that you occupy a, a base or camp, which means, uh, you know, obviously a delimited or a, a identifiable area, and that this occupation of the camp be approved by an agreement with the receiving state. Okay? So... It okay, there's a, there's a Canadian Forces member at NORAD. And, you know, let's say this is a male and has a girlfriend or something in town, and part of the time when he can get away, he lives with his girlfriend. That's fair enough. And he gets into this, you know really bad bar fight, and he ends up sort of at the girlfriend's house, and uh, the, the Canadian forces can't just burst down the door. They have to go, to, presumably, to Boulder, I guess it is, in Colorado, wherever NORAD is, and say, look, you know, our guy is in there, but we can't get at him. You've got to help us with this. Isn't, isn't there a sort of a parallel there? That, that, that is exactly it, yeah. Justice Rowe. That is exactly it. But if could I ask you this, could I ask you this? Upon the arrest, are you saying that the Canadian authorities would give this person their 10A and 10B rights? Yes. And this is what 
is different from, uh, and thank you, Justice Malari, for this question. This is what differs from other cases, from, for, for instance, the, uh, an investigation that the RCMP would conduct abroad. In our case, even if authority was required by the United States to enforce, to execute the search and warrants, the um, enforcement jurisdiction over the member of the CAF never ceased throughout that process. There's never any gap of the enforcement jurisdiction of our investigators over this CAF person, the person itself, not necessarily his residence. What so if, that's what, why. What if the United States wanted to arrest him? What if Virginia? What if he? What if he done this to an American citizen? Well, if that would have happened, then my friend was correct that a discussion would have ensued with our authority to see, okay. There's jurisdiction, let's say this, uh, our soldier assaults a civilian uh, in the United States, an American. In this case, the Nadio Sofa provides clearly that the primary jurisdiction is to the United States because he assaulted someone in the United States, as opposed to uh, if he would assault or commit any other crime against a member of our forces, then we have primary jurisdiction. But in this case, though, if it was, just take this exact case. He's an attache, I think Justice Rowe said. So he's got diplomatic immunity. So the United States has jurisdiction. They want to prosecute, and they say, Canada, we need you to get rid of the property restriction and to allow us to arrest him on a criminal offense, right? And what yes. if Canada says, no, we want him? Well, in this case, the Vienna Convention would take over. Because, then what would take over? Uh, the Vienna, well, the Canada would, would decide at that point. Um, the, uh, and that's why we say that in this context, the Vienna Convention came to play because of the point Justice Rowe just mentioned. Uh, and my answer just before, with your question, we you know, ignore that portion. If we bring back the Vienna Convention in, in the equation, for sure that that would be an all, another layer of discussion that would be independent of the pure enforcement jurisdiction, in the sense that if the, at that point it would no matter be a primary or secondary, there would be at that point an immunity if the United States would want to do anything, and then it would, be, it would become a diplomatic discussion. So you're drawing the distinction between the person and the property. And I guess I, I'm just, so if Corporal McGregor was there when the search and seizure was um, being conducted and uh, an officer, I, I, I just it, it did something to him physically, he would have a charter right on that. But because it was to property, i.e. a seizure, you're saying it's outside the charter application. Yes, I, I probably should have used a territorial enforcement jurisdiction as opposed to use a property, but yes, indeed. But there would be territorial enforcement jurisdiction over his person. Yes. If he had been beaten, for example, during an arrest. Yes, yes, agreed. The person... He, during the execution of the warrant. Yes, Justice. Well, hang on now. If, if the uh, Canadian uh, forces, NIS the provost, had gone in and punched this guy out, I mean, they'd be in trouble with the American authorities. Uh, I, mean, this, I mean, they're operating inside somebody else's jurisdiction. I mean, they're not, no, no, there is no extraterritoriality in the sense of you can go in and do what you want. The waiver uh, was for a, a very limited purpose. And, and the Americans couldn't have arrested the guy 
because because he was still covered by diplomatic immunity. I mean, this is the overlayer that that sort of complicates things. Correct. And just to be clear, when they were operating under during the totality of the search, they were working under the uh, the um, uh, the uh, the umbrella legal umbrella of the Virginia State. If an investigator at that point was to hit Corporal McGregor, as, as was alluded to, of course, any statement after that, you know, uh, uh, would be in question. But more importantly, as was just said, at that point, it would be our jurisdiction to criminally prosecute for assault. And in this case, while you're right, he would have been committed a crime in the United States. Our NATO would say, but wait a minute, in this case, a CAF member, which is our investigator, assaulting another CAF member, which was the accused or the subject at that time, Canada's primary jurisdiction to uh, complete the... Uh, right, but there'd be no, no question that Corporal McGregor would be able to assert a charter right in the context of whatever happens in a Canadian court. Definitely, and, and, if, and mainly in this case uh, could go to, um, to Section 7 and 11D. Uh, uh, or, again, if we're talking about an assault, then it's more, it's not necessarily the, the charter remedy of the subject, but more the prosecution of the perpetrator that would be into play. I just want to add here, because a lot of the uh, interveners, or at least one of them, mentioned this about this uh, consent from the Taliban would have been required. It's important for me to, to explain this quickly uh, before I pass the microphone to my colleague. When Canada deploys its forces abroad, one of two things will happen. Either our troops are deployed in a friendly country or at least a recognized state for training or assistance of any kind, in which case Canada, as I explained, will seek consent from that state uh, for the enforcement of its jurisdiction over our troops. That was the case for our involvement in Afghanistan after 2001, where we sought exclusive jurisdiction over our troops as a precondition to our presence in the country. There was no sharing of concurrent jurisdiction with the, um, uh, with the Afghan authorities, even after the Taliban had departed. Alternatively, when our mission is one of intervention following uh, a UN Security Council resolution, or the invocation of any UN Charter provisions that would allow uh, us or our forces to enter in another country without that country's uh, permission, as was the case in Afghanistan in 2001, our initial involvement. Then our jurisdiction over our forces is complete. There is no uh, state to seek consent from and to share jurisdiction with. In these cases, it is not consent but Canada's obligation on the, uh, to maintain control over its forces that becomes the permissive international rule that not only allows our criminal and disciplinary law to apply abroad, it mandates it. With such enforcement comes the charter protections. Although when there is consent, then there is a discussion as to the, uh, how the, both jurisdiction will take place, as we talked about in this case, the, the NATO so far. Let me ask you this question. Maybe it's a very dumb question, but to the extent that they have the warrant from Virginia, let's assume for the moment that it does not comply with VU. I'm not, it's an assumption, but let's assume it. How do you deal with that? What, what the, why would the Canadian authorities then have to get involved in looking at things on the property? I mean, should they be saying, look, 
you can do this, U.S. authorities, because that's in your warrant, your jurisdiction. But we shouldn't be doing that, so I'm not going to take part in that. Now, is that feasible or is that crazy? What I, I don't know what this is, because if they're bound by the charter, then theoretically, if they have a, an option, they should not be breaching the charter. I would agree, and this is why this case is a dangerous one to revisit tape, because the similarities between the American system and the Canadian system are so uh, clear that uh, it would seem so easy to say, well, just let it apply. It's the same thing. We reach the same result. Section 7, 11D, or Section 8, it's the same thing. There is a big difference. And to go to your question, Justice Moldaver, if the Section 7, 11D test, the trial fairness, would simply require that the uh, Canadian authorities, in good faith, respect the laws of the land where they operate. That would be, in most cases, suffice, uh, sufficient to, uh, to, to prove fairness. And therefore, any issue of what we could do underground or not is, uh, is prescribed by the law of that foreign state. I'm still unsure how you're distinguishing between jurisdiction over the person and jurisdiction over the person's property. Can you help me with that? Yes, and this is why I tried to, thank you, Justice, I tried to, uh, to, to not use the word property, but really territorial enforcement. So when we talk about the pres prescriptive power of, the, of Parliament to, uh, to legiferate about, for instance, Canadian abroad, there's no issue with that because th there's no enforcement per se. So that law follows the person. But each time we try to, uh, Canada would want to, whether it's in the law or, or not, to enforce whatever is prescribed in, in the law on that Canadian person, there will be a teriality and an element. Canada cannot enforce. And if there wasn't such NATO SOFA that would allow, by consent, for our investigator to autonomously conduct that investigation in the United States, then there would be no discussion between the member and the territoriality. In the case of an RCMP investigator, for instance, there's no difference. He cannot go abroad to arrest. He cannot go abroad even to investigate, even though that could be done in a subtle way. But he cannot go abroad to investigate and even less to search a property. Yeah, I guess, but once they've got jurisdiction to investigate the person, and they have the computer in their hands. I'm just not understanding why you're talking about that as being enforcement. Um, in this it, it comes back to my question, which is why the distinction between over the person and over the, the property. I know you'd rather talk about the ability to get in the door, but he's in the door. He's, he's in the door under the warrant, and he's got the computer in his hand under the warrant, and now the computer is being opened. Yes, my, my colleague will discuss more about that, but in this case, there's a very clear answer, is that the NATO SOFA, which was the consent to begin with, ex specifically, expressly excluded that portion. So the search and seizure, of, because of its location, the NATO SOFA said the, the cooperation will be necessary here. And the legal umbrella, and we know this from Terry, paragraph 19, once there is this cooperation, because Canada does not have the independent enforcement mechanism to achieve their aim, when there is such cooperation, it's under the umbrella of that receiving state. 
And as I mentioned, the NATO SOFA imposes on members of uh, the NATO SOFA to cooperate with each other. This brings us, as bring us to the current case uh, and how uh, this framework, and perhaps some of your question will be answered at that point, how this framework applied to the search of the appellant's residence. So we'll turn to my colleague. Thank you. Chief Justice, Justices, um, one of the things that I should probably start off with is the NATO SOFA and this, what we're talking about um, as a seamless transition. A seamless transition of enforcement jurisdiction from sending state, Canada, to the receiving state, the U.S., and back again under the umbrella of the SOFA, to cover the spectrum of enforcement actions needed to ensure that a commander of a military force abroad is able to maintain discipline. And all the while, CAF members are protected by the Charter when the Code of Service Discipline is enforced by Canadian military authorities, and this anywhere in the world. The SOFA provides a narrow and targeted consent by the receiving state for the Code of Service Discipline, and by extension, the Charter to apply. This kind of narrow targeted consent is in harmony with international law, as derived from the Lotus case, which was cited at HAPE, and with HAPE itself. This consent is also discussed by the BC Court of Appeal in TAN as a high-level state-to-state consent. In this case, the consent provided for in the SOFA did not cover the investigative step of the search. It fell outside the provisions of the SOFA which uh, enable the CFNIS to enforce, and it fell within the SOFA provisions of law enforcement cooperation. This is this seamless transition where there is cooperation between friendly states within the NATO construct to ensure that enforcement um, uh, jurisdiction is exercised concurrently and harmoniously. And of course, cooperation couldn't itself trigger the application of the Charter. Um, to use Justice LaBelle's words from HAPE, there is no magic in the words cooperative investigation. And uh, further, the subjective views of the CFNIS or the US police could equally not trigger the application of the Charter. It it may be useful to look again at sovereignty as it relates to the Virginia search. Sovereignty requires that a state's laws govern on its territory. The doctrine of sovereignty includes the territoriality of criminal law and the exclusive right of the state to administer criminal justice. One of the high points of this sovereignty is the state's monopoly on why, when, and how force may be lawfully used on its territory. The search of a residence is a classic example of coercive force that is restricted to the territorial state. 
In this case, the state of Virginia had the exclusive sovereign right to prescribe why, when, and how a residence in Virginia may be searched by police. This law, and only this law, governs the preauthorization of the search, the manner of the search, what may be seized, and any post-search judicial reporting process. The coercive act of physical search and seizure on its own territory can be said to be at the core of the foreign state sovereignty. Thus, when Canadian police conduct an investigation in Virginia, under the SOFA, in partnership with local investigators, the Virginia laws of search and seizure must govern the search of the residents in that jurisdiction, absent consent or exceptionally the applicability of another permissive rule of international law. But as I take it, no, nobody's arguing the proposition that uh, the local authority uh, gets to uh, um, conduct the search and seizure according to local law. It's a very different question to say when back in a Canadian court faced by a Canadian um, criminal charge, whether or not that uh, the accused can uh, plead a charter right that attaches to investigative steps that were just done outside the country. Well, I think um, in that respect, uh, Justice Martin, um, we move to uh, trial fairness. If there remains concerns in a particular military prosecution about how foreign laws compare with those of Canada, HAPE again has the answer. This case is, in fact, a straightforward application of HAPE, despite its unique military context. It is, in fact, if I can digress for a minute, this, it is this context um, which is, in fact, the rare and exceptional example of extraterritorial application. Where there was no example given in HAPE, we are the example. The military justice system is the example. As I said, HAPE again has the answer to the trial fairness issue. Um, the approach in HAPE ensures that evidence gathered abroad does not result in an unfair trial in Canada. Common law fairness protections continue to apply to evidence gathered abroad. These uh, protections include the requirement to prove voluntariness of a statement, the exclusion of evidence that's more prejudicial than probative, and the availability of entrapment or abusive process defenses for investigative steps on foreign right. soil. Those are sections, uh, the, the 7 and 11, that, that HAPE expressly includes. But this is a Section 8 case um, in terms of how it's been framed and phrased. And so are you saying that Section 7 then, and the trial fairness, is broad enough to deal with search and seizure issues? Or are you saying that the search and seizure issues fall outside? And then I'll have a follow-up question. The Section 7 and 11D rights, while not technically encompassing every charter right, um, provides the trial judge with a broad discretion to ensure that evidence at trial uh, would only be admitted if it does not render the trial unfair. I think it's important to look at um, uh, the admission of evidence vers versus Section 8 as we know in a domestic context. Um, in a joint or cooperative investigation, it's unrealistic to, to suggest that Charter Section 8 standards be imposed on Canadian investigators 
without interfering with their foreign partners. These partner police agencies work together. A constraint on one necessarily impacts the other. If Canadian investigators in a cooperative investigation as this was are required to follow Section 8 standards, this, in my submission, compels foreign police to follow Section 8 standards as well. I, I don't think that's, that that's the case. The, the, the local authorities will use their, their, their powers, but what, what I'm asking is that if we're coming back and using HAPE and using trial fairness, it seems to me that's um, a proxy, a covert tool. It's, it's creating a notion that's only partially a representative of the charter rights that could be at issue and, in fact, are said to be at issue in this case. And why wouldn't we go directly um, to the charter itself and do a comparative conflict of laws analysis saying that as we go through the assessment under Section 8 of whether there's a breach, and certainly when we go through an assessment of whether there's been a serious infringement, we would take exactly those considerations into account at that stage of the analysis rather than an amorphous idea of trial fairness. I think the difficulty, Justice Martin, is that Section 8 has been interpreted in a domestic context. We have domestic case law. Uh, we have tests about domestically seized evidence. These do not neatly get transposed into the extraterritorial context. Um, and so it is an uncomfortable cut and paste, which uh, I would suggest is not wise. Perhaps that the any more uncomfortable than 11D? <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would suggest that if this court is, is looking to give greater um, um, guidance on trial fairness, then that should be the notion that the court should focus on. I think the, uh, the use of the Section 8 as a guide uh, has limits. And, um, and I think in this, in, to bring us back to this particular case under the NATO SOFA, um, there is harm in applying the charter to this case, specifically to the extraterritorial enforcement. Um, this would offend the concept of cooperation and do violence to the law of visiting forces. This is a serious problem in the consent paradigm in which the CAF operates routinely and throughout the world. The now, legal uh, now, I'm going to just shoehorn in another one. It's as good a time as any. When, when uh, this court, not the HAPE court, this court, uh, uh, rendered its decision in HAPE, when Justice LaBelle referred to those two exceptions to uh, limits on extraterritorial application, he referred to consent. And uh, you've used the word cooperation. Consent in, uh, in terms of the Virginia state authorities does not consent in the international law context have something different, have a different meaning than a sort of an ad hoc arrangement where, you know, we'll work with you on this one today. Is not consent the, the, the taking of a formal step which has a legally binding effect? Is not SOFA the consent? Oh, indeed. And... What is done by the Virginia authorities is, in a sense, uh, giving effect to it. But it's 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 the it's the practical application. It's the cooperation 
to which the commitment has been made in SOFA. But the consent isn't what the Virginia authorities say. The consent which is relevant for international law is the actions of the United States of America to enter into a treaty for the status of Canadian forces in the United States. And, And so the generic meaning of consent and the technical meaning of consent are also another thing which kind of floats around and causes confusion here. I've noted you've always used the two words quite carefully. Thank you for making my argument so ably, Justice Rowe. Um, indeed, consent is, is this high-level state-to-state consent as discussed in TAN. In this case, um, I'm talking about a cooperative investigation because we have the umbrella of consent as evidenced by the NATO SOFA at the treaty level. The SOFA mandates cooperation to ensure that uh, that our military can uh, discipline its troops. And so where our uh, military authorities um, uh, cannot enforce because they must yield to the, to the territorial jurisdiction of the NATO state in which we are, in this case in the U.S., um, cooperation is mandated to ensure that we don't have an enforcement gap. So we don't have uh, the case where a CAF member uh, is acting with impunity. Um, we do but want may to- I just go back to that notion of consent? And I understand that Justice Bennett in Tan said that. Uh, but if we go back to hate, um, in my reading, the majority did not really put a lot of uh, content into the concept of consent. And if we're looking at what consent means, I'm not sure that the majority and and, uh, Justice Bennett and Tan are actually in tandem. And if we look at consent, doesn't Justice Bastarash go to the extent to saying the mere fact of, of the people being on foreign soil may, in a cooperative police investigation, be tantamount to consent? I, I would suggest, Justice Martin, that um, a, any cooperative investigation is insufficient to ground consent. The consent that is necessary uh, in order to respect international law needs to be at this high state-to-state level. Um, we have been talking uh, about the SOFA. This, this is the example we come back to again and again uh, because it is high-level state-to-state. Um, the, I think um, Justice McLaughlin, as, as she then was, uh, said 11 years ago in Terry, uh, the practice of cooperation of, uh, of between police of different countries does not make the law of one country applicable to the other. Um, I think the cooperation is is a red herring if one is looking at consent. It helps underst- uh, it, it helps one understand why um, the um, uh, there was uh, the need for consent because of the provisions of the SOFA. We come back to the seamless transition from the CFNIS enforcement to the need for the Alexandria Police enforcement and then back to the CFNIS. Uh, but certainly that cooperation, uh, in my view, um, is, is not indicative of consent. It, it, it cannot be under international law in my submission. Can I ask you... Um Something I've, it's something I've been struggling with since I was reading all the cases prior to Hape, and in particular Cook. 
So, so you're saying the charter doesn't apply because the authority, sorry, over here, um, because the authority to access the residence was governed by U.S. law, and as you'll know from my earlier interventions, I'm, I'm sensitive to that argument. Um, so why did the charter apply in Cook? Because wasn't access to the detention center um, and the actual detention of the accused in Cook, wasn't that the product of domestic U.S., I can't remember the state, law as well? Uh, uh, and I think that since it was not a Section 8 case, it, it's, uh, it's, it, it can be looked at through a different lens. Um, I mean, I find Cook quite puzzling generally, but but, but this think, kind of leaps I, out. Yeah. I think you're in good company, Justice yeah. Brown. Um, and so I think here um, we're, we're looking at um, uh, something that wasn't the, the, um, uh, a, a coercive search and seizure, as we have in this case. Um, we have um, an interview um, in the U.S., um, and arguably a nationality-based test. Um, and so I think um, it's the nationality versus, versus territoriality tension um, that is different uh, than in this case. Um, and, but I think, um, I think it, if I can speak plainly, I think the, the HAPE construct is a better one in that it is, it is, um, it takes into account, in my view, um, uh, a greater respect for the international laws under which we need to govern ourselves. And, and again, coming back to this particular case, um, I think HAPE is a more uh, useful um, lens with uh, through which to examine the facts in this case uh, than Cook. So I, I, I unreservedly uh, prefer Hape over Cook, as uh, as I think Justice LaBelle did as well. Well, clearly, <laughs> some of us some of us don't like lenses, but we're okay with analytical frameworks. <laughs> um, on the issue of uh, uh, on the issue of consent, I, g I gather that there is something to be made of Justice LaBelle's emphasis that in most cases there will be no such exception and that the Charter will, will not apply. So first of all, he's, he, accept, he himself, although he doesn't elaborate much, paragraph 113 expressly mentions that. And the other point, I guess, is it's also uh, an exception to the principle of sovereignty. That's what we're talking about, an exception to the principle of sovereignty. So it can't be at the level of inf cooperative investigation. They don't have the authority no. to grant an exception to sovereignty. And I guess my question then is, do you agree with the way that Ontario has framed the the uh, the consent the idea of consent in its factum. Yes, yes, uh, yes, Justice Kamal. Um, and I think the um, the consent here um, uh, is. Um, in, 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 uh, we, we obviously didn't occur to the the, 
the Hape Court as an example of that consent. Uh, and of course, um, uh, the military justice system has been operating uh, for many, many decades. Um, but, uh, but I come back to my point that this is in fact um, a classic example of that consent. And I think it is useful to look at these, this fact pattern uh, in order to perhaps um, uh, provide a little, uh, um, a slightly richer um, contextual framework uh, to, to HAPE here. Um, but, and, but I should, um, looking at my time, um, address uh, the elephant in the room. Um, if this court wishes to revisit HAPE, for any reason, as uh, most of the interveners are inviting this court to do, uh, this is not the proper case to do so. First, uh, the record is insufficient to allow for proper analysis. Um, reconsidering HAPE's framework was not part of the court martial or the appellate challenges in this case, nor is it part of the appellant's submissions before the court today. As a result, this court does not have the benefit of the holistic assessment of lower courts. The interveners wish for this court to decide well beyond the courts below what the courts below and the parties have advanced. Finally, this case, as I have mentioned many times, is very fact-specific. It is in the military context, and its main issue is concerned with a physical search and seizure in a private residence in a cooperative investigation between Canadian military police and foreign police outside Canada. The court should focus on this key issue, which is important and complex enough in its own right. The court should not be diverted by the injection of other extraneous issues, which do not arise on the facts of this case and only serve to complicate and cloud the analysis. The scenarios raised by the interveners, CSIS, CSE, RCMP, are interesting but they do not arise on the facts of McGregor. They were not considered by the courts below. They deeply implicate government agencies that are not party to the appeal and are unable to represent their own disparate interests and to offer the court their institutional expertise. Can we really avoid dealing with uh, hype, though, because, uh, at least implicitly, because we do have to deal with the consent exception and the idea of whether the appropriate framework is international laws proposed by Justice LaBelle or um, just a broader reading of Section 32 as proposed by Justice Bastrash or some other version. Isn't that sort of necessarily implicated when we start getting into whether consent applies or not? I would suggest, Justice Kamal, that HAPE could be um, um, dealt with with a light touch. Um, I think it is, it is um, an important enough um, uh, framework uh, for Canadian actors um, abroad um, that clarification uh, would be welcome, but wholesale um, uh, revamping um, would be uh, problematic. But Ms. Thiessen, wouldn't, just to follow up on Justice Jamal's comment, what about Justice Karakatsana's question that she asked the appellant? Let, let's assume that the charter applies here. You, you devote little attention to the Section 8 breach in, uh, in your written authorities, but your position there is, is that Section 8 wasn't breached? Indeed. What? 
Section 8 was not breached. The, so the, the light touch, maybe the light touch is not to touch at all. Well, the light touch uh, perhaps um, is to deal with uh, clarification of the consent exception. Military justice system is an example of the consent exception. Is there a problem? Is there, I mean, has this been an issue? No. Uh, I mean, do you have mayors of Mayberry um, purporting to consent on behalf of the government of the United States? No, happily, I'm not aware of any, okay. uh, Justice Brown. But um, but the um, uh, the discussion in HAPE is, is light on guidance about consent, and uh, the only other case that I'm aware of is... Uh, is the B.C. Court of Appeal case in Tan, which right. is useful, but doesn't rise to the level of this court, of course. The city of uh, municipality of Vancouver, I think, purports to carry on its own foreign policy, but that's maybe an anomaly. Let me conclude by saying... Uh, Can I just ask you this? Yes, just Was it necessary... Let's assume the Virginia police force said, yes, we've got this warrant. It says we can seize and search. And the Canadians say, please don't do that, because that may run afoul of our charter. And they say, okay, that's fine. We'll just take the items, and we'll make a return. And then what? I mean, you know, clearly there may not be a law, an equal law under Virginia law that says, now you can apply for another warrant. But really what the Canadians wanted was to get their hands on this, to get it back to Canada. Is that making any sense? I, 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 think, I think, Justice Moldaver, um, the larger question would be, what's the harm of applying the charter in this case? And the answer is, it would, as I mentioned before, it would offend the concept of cooperation and do violence to the law of visiting forces. Here we're acting under the sofa, and the United States has entered into a treaty saying, um, you may go thus far, but no further. And by asking the Alexandria police to, to, to uh, tweak their warrant to do this, which is not their, their practice, not their law, um, that offends their, tor- their, their territoriality, um, which uh, is a breach of the SOFA. Thank you very much. <laughs> Your time is up. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chief Justice. Gavin McDonald. Pardon me, Chief Justice, Justices. I'm now unmuted. Uh, More and more, for myriad reasons, Canadian civilian police are engaging in cooperative cross-border investigations dealing with a wide variety of crimes. These investigations are essential to effective criminal enforcement both within Canada and outside our borders. Uh, They are dynamic, volatile, and complex. Ontario's position is that the law that applies to them should be none of these things. This court cannot lose sight of the fact that our investigating agencies need realistic and workable guidelines going forward as to how the Charter affects cross-border investigations. What they need and what Canadian society demands is a structure that at one and the same time ensures the protection of fundamental rights while allowing for effective transnational criminal investigations. Ontario's position is that the HAPE framework accomplishes this dual purpose by providing a workable framework for police to to guide police uh, 
while ensuring that fair trial remains or fair trial rights remain assiduously protected. Mr. McDonald, I'm just going to ask you in terms of protect, uh, providing a realistic and workable guidelines to police who are involved in investigations and enforcements abroad, wouldn't it be more practical uh, and realistic to ask them to comply with the charter rights with which they're familiar rather than international human rights? The the difficulty there, um, uh, Justice Karakatsanis, is that when, when they're operating abroad, they're also dealing with the law of the land in which they're operating. Um, and so to require them to, at one and the same time, abide by charter rights that are de- that have been developed in a, in a domestic context, um, uh, while also ensuring that they are abiding by the law uh, of the of the jurisdiction in which they're operating, would, uh, in in my submission, place uh, a, a very difficult burden on police. And and the reality is that it would it would it would hamper uh, the effectiveness of their investigations okay. abroad. I'm sorry to have taken you off course. I, I was actually referring to the HAPE exception for international human rights, and I thought it would be an easier framework for police um, to be guided by the charter. But but I've taken you off course. Uh, I apologize. No, that's all right. I, I, I want to ensure that I've answered your question, though, Justice Karakatanis. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Thank you. The reality is that the consent exception outlined in HAPE will rarely apply. Um, the fact of the matter is that in the vast majority of cooperative investigations involving Canadian police abroad, the procedural structure for the investigation will necessarily be furnished by the host state in accordance with the host state's law. As the HAPE court recognized uh, correctly in my submission, Canadian authorities cannot simply insist on ad hoc procedures in foreign jurisdictions in order to fulfill procedural expectations that have been developed in Canada in a domestic Canadian law context. Um, the, the complexities inherent in the Section 8 analysis uh, highlight why Canadian police cannot insist on the strict application of our own domestic procedures. And that's made clear in HAPE. And uh, HAPE discusses the unique problems raised by the extraterritorial application of Section 8 in particular. Um, the section's protection against unreasonable search and seizure is necessarily contextual and is not easily malleable to the great vagaries inherent in, invest- in, in international investigations. The strict application of Section 8 to searches in foreign jurisdictions would require investigators to determine one, whether they have a reasonable, whether they're the target has a reasonable expectation of privacy in the subject matter of the search, and two, the relative privacy interest in the subject matter of the search. And these questions would have to be answered not only according to our own procedures, but also in the specific context of the variety of laws and procedures that govern the particular state in which the investigators are operating. It's Ontario's position that officers on the ground cannot be expected to harmonize different rules as they go. Uh, And where there is a conflict, they cannot be expected to walk away from their obligations to investigate. To ensure efficient investigations that remain protective of fundamental rights, the police require clear, workable guidelines when working in the very different context of extrajudicial 
investigations, and it's Ontario's position that HAPE provides a, a framework that accomplishes these goals while also protecting fundamental rights under the Charter. Thank you very much. I see my time is up. Yes, thank you. <clears throat> a reply, Ms. Mensur. Questions that arose um, uh, to my friend about the harm in applying the Charter to the actions of the military police. And with our respectful submission, there is no harm to the authorities of the U.S. to apply the Charter to the actions of our state actors. That is the intention and was the intention with respect to HAPE, and it renders us in compliance with customary international law. However, there is a harm in not applying the Charter to the actions of the military members as it sends this message to our members of our forces who serve our country every day that they're vulnerable by virtue of their employment. Those are our submissions. Thank you, Chief Justice. So I'd like to thank Council for all your submissions. The Court will take the case under advisement. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the Court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.